Hello, my name is Harley Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Now for the final episode in our trilogy of Star Wars films, now discussing the sequel trilogy of Star Wars films, the Disney-led trilogy. Our trilogy of trilogies. Yes. First, we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I saw, to start off here, four movies in the cinemas this week. To start off, I saw The Comeback Trail. It is a comedy directed by George Gallo. It is based on a barely seen 1982 movie of the same name, directed by Harry Hurwitz. It's set in the 1970s, and it follows this this trashy B-movie producer named Max Barber. He's played by Robert De Niro, and he's in debt to a gangster named Reggie Fontaine. He's played by Morgan Freeman. And he has this great idea to come up with the money. He's going to make a fake movie, get an old, drunk, washed-up Western star named Duke Montana, played by Tommy Lee Jones, to star in it, and do all of his own stunts, but he's going to rig the stunts to be as dangerous and unstable as possible so that Duke Montana will die, he will get paid the insurance money on him, and he'll be able to pay off his debt. This proves not to be the greatest of plans, though, because Duke Montana ends up being this death-defying, borderline, instructable old man who manages to get through all of these disasters unscathed and inexplicably along the way ends up making a really, really good movie. As you do. This is amusing and agreeable, but it has no personality. It's occasionally funny, but it's not funny enough. It has this extended first act before we ever even get to all of the the mob stuff and, you know, the disastrous run of his, his previous movies that haven't been successful and the general position that he occupies in the industry. He's running this film business with his nephew, who is played by Zach Braff. It's an extended beat that doesn't really go many places before we actually get to the meat of the story. But once you get onto the the film set and you start dealing with the different ways of getting rid of Duke, that starts to get a little more entertaining. But it is repetitive. It is just different bizarre things that he he tries to do he tries to get a a, a horse to rear well he's on it he cuts a bridge halfway through a rope bridge so that it will collapse when he's on it things like this and becomes does he tie a lady to a train track no zinger see i told you i was gonna keep doing it sean what do you mean why is that a zinger because it's a you interrupted me to bring it right everything right to a halt with a random non sequitur that made sense only to no, you i'm saying i'm trying to say that the, it's sort of old-timey villain plots okay the way that he's trying to get rid of him yes but he's rigging stunts if he were to actually kidnap a woman and tie her to a train tracks that's not that's not a stunt that's just a crime okay <laughs> fine but yeah, it, it, there's some fun film set stuff, the culture of a film set, the ragtag group of people that he's hired to produce this film because he's just looking for the cheapest, most available, uh, pointless talent, but they end up being like these geniuses who make this great movie. Like the director he hires ends up being a savant. That's all 
kind of fun, but there's no real journey for the characters. None of them really end up in a different place than they were when they started. And it's lacking a point of view. There's no vital personality. Freeman and Tommy Lee Jones are both great. De Niro isn't. He's doing his modern-day De Niro thing of just doing his general sleepwalking through his roles. Like, he really should... He's not trying, you know? Yeah, his war on grandpa stuff. Yeah. Emile Hirsch is in it in a supporting role as well, and he's quite fun. It's clearly cheap. It's clearly a a small-budget film. It's a little surprising they got the actors that they did... I suspect that they got Freeman first because he's worked with the director before, and I think after that, the other people start falling in. I think once you get Freeman and De Niro and Tommy Lee Jones, it's easy enough to get Zach Braff and Emile Hirsch because they get to work with these actors. But let's be frank here. These actors are the only thing standing between this movie and a video-on-demand release. Like, Well, we can't all be frank. I'm I'm so tempted to just... I don't want to overuse it, but I'm so tempted. (laughs) Uh, This is okay. It it just needed more flavor. I next saw Radioactive, which is a biopic directed by Marjane Satrapi, who was the director of The Voices, the Ryan Reynolds film. This is her first film since The Voices. I don't know where she's been, but it's based on a book by Lauren Redness, and it tells the true story of Madame Marie Curie played by Rosamund Pike, and her life and career, particularly her partnership, both professionally and personally, with her husband, Pierre, played by Sam Riley. Together, they discovered radioactivity. She actually coined the term. And they discovered the new elements of polonium and radium. This is an interesting look at a fascinating historical figure. It's really driven by the performances. Pike and Riley are both really fantastic in it. It focuses in on her personal life, some real tragedies that she suffered, that she ended up being a woman who lost quite a, quite a lot and suffered quite a deal and ended up quite unhappy by the end. And it focuses in on her work as well in a really interesting way. The fact that she is a female scientist at the end of the 1800s, that she doesn't really get get taken seriously by her colleagues, at least to start off with. It has the standard biopic pacing problems, though, where they're having... It's always a problem trying to fit the entirety of a person's professional life into a two-hour film. It becomes episodic. It's why I think that that television miniseries are, are better suited for that because it allows you to really explore all of those things in a much more complete way. It's well performed and well filmed, but narratively it's bumpy because of that. Uh, this yeah. biopics always have that problem. This one has it more than most, I think. I think it does seem erratic the way that it jumps around. The script is also occasionally overwritten. It's filled with portent where these characters will, will say these very dramatic things about what they're doing. And it's like, all right, we get it. The atom bomb. I, 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 I understand. <laughs> but that stuff, actually, that angle is kind of the most interesting part of it. It unpacks the discoveries and the realizations that were occurring at the end of her life of actually, no, this is, this is what this actually is. I mean, It killed her. Her work killed her. It gave her a plastic anemia. It talks about, you know, after, like, the first little bit of of radium that she discovered, this, like, tiny little glowing powder, glows green. I mean, she keeps it 
under her pillow as a keepsake for years. And yeah, that'll be the thing. Yeah, that's not going to do well for her. And her daughter ended up working with it as well. And she died in her 50s. So it, it goes into that. It goes into once they came up with these these glowing elements before they realized it was dangerous. There was all of this crazy stuff like radium chocolate, radium beauty powder. Like all of this insane stuff that started to be to be used, and it flashes forward. It's not entirely linear. Occasionally, when they're when they're talking about it and the potential risks of it, it'll flash forward to things in the future, and you'll see these little episodic intervals dealing with the bombing of Hiroshima, dealing with Chernobyl, dealing with the nuclear tests in the Arizona desert, but also dealing... That's interesting. Yes, but also dealing with stuff like chemotherapy, which we learn at the very end is known in Paris as Curie therapy. It it goes into the the movie's thesis that, that Curie expresses in the movie that you can't hide the knowledge. You've got to trust people. The knowledge itself, the science itself, is never going to be evil or the problem. It's what people do with it. And you've you've got to trust people and you've got to hold people to a standard in how they use the science, but you can't embrace ignorance because it's more comfortable. How's the direction? Because this is an interesting film for this filmmaker to make because I've seen at least the majority of the voices and that's a very wild film. It is. This has lots of style. It's unexpectedly dark and brooding visually. It has a lot of atmosphere. It's not as stylized as the voices. It's not as unique a, a, a visual tone as the voices, which, to be fair, would have probably not have been fitting for this movie. The voices is something very particular that allowed her to take some really interesting swings. This doesn't really do that, but it, it, it does have its own personality like and the way that like she she understands the gravity of what she's dealing with in a really interesting way like the bit where they do the arizona the arizona desert bombing stuff that's the fake towns with the mannequins and things what indiana jones stumbles into at the beginning of kingdom of the crystal skull so we see one of those tests and it lingers on all of these mannequins as their faces melt away like they're in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it just lingers on the destructive power of all of this stuff as the the uh, the the plastic heats to such a degree that it burns a hole down into the earth. The plastic just keeps yeah. is so hot that it just disintegrates the sand of the desert and creates this massive sinkhole as it sinks further and further down. And then it cuts back to Marie Curie as, as if she's seeing it in her mind's eye, and she she throws this crystal glass that she's bought with all of her money from her success. She throws it into the hole and it just disappears. And that's full of like, there, there's stuff like that, that um, she's got some, the director has got some really good ideas. there, really interesting ideas. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a compelling look at a really brilliant and tragic figure. And it emphasizes the cost to her both personally and the realization towards the end of her life that actually she found something that was really, really dangerous and her trying to work with that. There's the implication here. I don't know if it's historically relevant. I I, I think that he actually died before any of it could actually become a problem for him. But the, the implication is before her husband is killed. I mean, spoiler alert for real life. Her husband died very, very young. Uh, hit by a horse and carriage, but 
beforehand, the movie shows him clearly suffering the effects of radiation poisoning. Um, it's, it's generally accepted in real life that he would have died of it if he had lived long enough, but he apparently did have um, radiation burns and lesions and things before he died. The movie is framed by her dying. Like, the movie starts with her collapsing in her lab as an, as an older woman, and as she is hallucinating, she sees her whole life flash before her eyes, and she sees the effects of, of everything. She sees Chernobyl as, as she's dying. And one of the final scenes is her walking through the hospital of her imagination, and all of the beds are filled with the victims of Hiroshima and the victims of Chernobyl and all of these people, her husband, uh, all of these these people that uh, were affected by radioactivity. But also she sees people having chemotherapy and things like that. Yeah. Like, it's a really interesting take on not only the, the person who seems like a very compelling and complicated person, but but the, the, the implications of a discovery like that and how that yeah. must affect an individual. I mean, you, you get that story of the widow of the man who invented the Winchester rifle, who was so, so distraught by, by the fact that she, her wealth was amassed by a, a weapon that killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And at the end of her life thought that she was being haunted by the ghosts of those victims. I mean, what, what was, what does, do discoveries of that type, do inventions of that type, how does that psychologically affect the inventor? That's a really interesting thing. That's probably the most interesting part of this movie. Yeah, it, it's it's a cool film. I next watch Alone. It is a horror movie, although I will say that it straddles the line between horror and simple thriller more than most do. I think it ends up on the side of horror. Some would disagree with me. It's directed by John Hyams. This, there are at least two 2020 horror movies called Alone. This is, there is a, a Donald Sutherland starring one where Donald Sutherland and the guy from Teen Wolf try to survive a zombie outbreak in an apartment building. This is not that movie. This is a different Alone. Yeah, because I've seen the trailer for that yeah. and it's based off of a South Korean film. Yeah, well, this is a remake of a 2011 Swedish film called Gone by Matthias Olsen and Henrik J.P. Ackerson. They directed that original one. I believe Matthias Olsen returned to write the screenplay for this one. This is about a woman named Jessica. She's played by Jules Wilcox, and she is stalked and abducted by a serial killer, played by Mark Menchaka, as she is going on a cross-country road trip. She ends up in the mountains with all of these wooded forests and things, and she gets abducted, and she must escape into the woods with him pursuing. Yeah, when when you go into the woods on a road trip, you got to keep your head on a swivel. This is taught up close and really personal. It is a methodical account of survival. It takes its time. It is not interested in, you know, quick cuts and, and jumping around and fast editing and, and things like that. It is taking its time, you know how would this play out and and they they go through it it's it's minimalist it's only those two characters for the most part in the woods so kind of the revenant kind of thing where you see the steps that she takes to survive yes. and you're yes. there with all of and it and the bear is instead of serial killer <laughs> yeah but it's it's brilliantly filmed it's tense and it's nerve-wracking it holds for detail in really interesting ways 
when she is escaping the house, she he comes home unexpectedly and he and she hides in a closet while he goes and makes himself lunch. And he gets a phone call during lunch that we learn over the course of the call, oh, he's talking to his wife and she thinks that he's on a business trip somewhere doing some business deal. And oh, now she's going to put their small daughter on the phone. And it's like this this gradual realisation as she's listening to this five-minute conversation that the director holds on of this serial killer who who we've seen as this this monster, this sociopath, having a very normal conversation with his family on the phone yeah. and like, oh, that's just twisted in this totally unexpected way, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting, the way that holds for detail there and, and in other places like it. The acting is great. Wilcox and Menchaka are both fantastic. Menchaka gets an especially interesting opportunity to show off. He gets a very creepy monologue where he explains his worldview that is, again, this other five-minute thing that the movie goes into towards its finale that it holds for five minutes so that he can, you know, shout into the woods at the middle of the night, I know you're out there and I'm coming for you and this is my worldview, like that stuff. It's... So what genre of serial killer is he? Uh, very Ted Bundy-esque. All right. Um, he, he is methodical. He has an MO. Like, they make reference to Ted Bundy also. Like, he tries to trick her early on when she's, like, because it's split into sections. The first 20 minutes or so is her on the road and him pursuing her, like, tailgating her. He keeps turning up at rest stops. He tries to trick her at one point by suggesting that his car has broken down in the middle of the road and he's got his arm in a sling, just like Ted Bundy used to do. So would you get out of the car and help me push it out of the road? She's like, no way, I'm leaving. You keep turning up. This is creepy. And that's the other really... I've seen the Netflix special. That's the other really gratifying thing here is that Jessica is incredibly smart. She always makes the absolute smartest decision that she could possibly make at any given moment in the film. Like, this isn't a horror protagonist doing things that they This shouldn't. isn't urban legend. Pardon? This isn't urban legend. This no. isn't urban legend. This is like, every, everything that she does is like, oh, that's really smart. Like, the way that she gets out of the cellar that she's being kept in is that she notices he's left the key in the lock. So she pulls a nail out of... Uh, one of the the wooden beams of the cellar pokes it into the lock so that the key pops out on the other side and she's put her coat under the the door so that it catches the key and that she then pulls it in like it <laughs> she always does the absolute smartest thing um and that's really really gratifying it's it's a very positive surprise i i'm i i liked it a lot but not as much as i liked the last movie i saw in cinemas this week the Empty Man. It is a supernatural horror film directed by David Pryor. It's based on the graphic novel of the same name by Cullen Bunn. And it is about a former policeman named James Lasombra. He's played by James Badge Dale. He's tracking down the missing daughter of a friend of his. And he starts to uncover the fact that her and her friends have perhaps become victim of an urban legend called The Empty Man. And the idea of The Empty Man is, is that if you go on to a bridge at night and you pick up an empty bottle that has been found that has been left on the bridge and you blow into it, uh, that he will come after you. And on the first night you will hear him on the second night, you will see him. And on the third night he will take you. This is so much more than I expected it to be. 
it's the oh the trailer was not good. No, no, it was the, not. The trailer made it seem like the the bye bye man. Yeah, or yeah. Like... That's not this. I I finished this movie and I thought this has not got good reviews and this will be very divisive. And I looked it up and sure enough, I was correct. I loved it though. It's exactly my kind of thing. I I like you watched the trailer. I thought it was going to be the standard supernatural slasher movie, you know, the the ring, Candyman, you know, we've seen Spender it Man. so many times before that they've got these rules that they need to follow and, you know, that's going to be the thing, that they summon this spirit that they can't control and, and they've got to escape it. And it is that for the first act. And it's actually a really good one of those. But then it switches gears entirely. Initially, I kind of pushed back at it. I didn't understand what it was doing. I didn't expect it to go in the direction it was going, and I thought it had jumped the shark. Then it finally clicked what they were doing, and I loved it from that moment out. This is cosmic horror. It is incredibly, Dope. incredibly Lovecraftian. Like, it draws on so many really classic cosmic horror tropes. The Candyman is not, uh, not the Candyman, the, the Empty Man is not some supernatural, you know, stalker. He is this ancient cosmic creature that is connected to the world and, and it's way, way more complex and complicated than, than is, is initially suggested by that trailer or even the, the start of the, the film. I, I, if, if there is a complaint that I have, it is that the pacing suffers while it's making that shift. Um, but once it is made, it's wild and it's strange. It's really strange. I'm surprised that it, this is from a major studio. It's from 20th Century Studios. So Disney put this out. It's really trippy. It's super creepy too. Like the villain is fantastic. You get this great 20 minute prologue. Um, that is like just a brilliant tight short film in itself. Uh, like you don't get the title card the empty man until 20 minutes into the movie because you spend a lot of time with these friends hiking in the mountains of this uh, i forget where it was it was it was a country in asia somewhere but they're up in the snowy mountains hiking and one of them falls into a crevice and the others go down to find him and they find him mute staring into the corner and when they look into the corner there is this gigantic skeleton like nine like a human skeleton but nine feet tall and it all this eerie stuff is coming out of it and then of course after that they have they've disturbed this spirit they've disturbed the empty man this is sort of this is the, how the empty man comes into the world we learn this is set in the 90s the rest of the movie is set in the present day and so they're the idiots that wake it. By accident, yes. But but that's yeah. how they establish it. This snowstorm hits, so they end up having to go and hide in, go and uh, take shelter in this abandoned cottage. And so that's where you start to see the rules. First night you hear him. Second night you see him. In the middle of this snowstorm, they see this tall, dark figure standing in the distance they go out and they call to it but it doesn't respond and you can kind of make out that it is sort of jittery like there's wafts of shadow coming off of him moving shadow and it sort of stares at them and then it suddenly starts running at them that's never great i i think i'm looking at a picture of that skeleton that you're talking about yes that's it that's fucked man yeah you find that, and it's game over for you. And 
it, it's just this really tight, tight opening sequence that really sets the stage, and it's genuinely creepy. The the visual realization of the empty man when you see him is really, really creepy. Did you see that Slender Man movie? No, no, not yet. Right, it is on the list. <laughs> um, but it has a lot. I haven't either. I. I- I, I did Marble Hornets, Tribe 12, Everyman Hybrid. I can't do Hollywood's version of Slender Man. Uh, this is a lot of... There's just a lot of cool, frightening ideas and imagery in this movie. It's not all explained. It has a challenging ending. Like, that's one of the reasons I walked out thinking, oh, a lot of people didn't like this, did they? Because it doesn't end... It doesn't wrap things up in a clean fashion. It it messes with your head one more time. Uh, it, in, yeah, it... So it leaves it incredibly open-ended. Not really. You 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 know what's happened at the end. Like it's not it's not ambiguous in that sense. But it is kind of like the last thing that you would expect a studio horror movie to do for its ending. Usually, when I'm watching a horror movie, the most unexpected thing is a happy ending with no scare at the end. That's not this, but yeah, yeah. Um, it's. It's, it ends in a very Lovecraftian, cosmic horror kind of way that oh, cool. mainstream audiences will no doubt be like, wait, what? But it worked for me. Your mileage may vary. James Badgedale uh, and Ron Canada are both really good in it. But Stephen Root is absolutely fantastic. He comes in for like one scene and he just steals the whole movie with his little monologue that he gets to perform in, in such a fantastic uh, showy manner. And it has tons of style, too. It's brilliantly shot. It it has a fantastic score by Christopher Young and Brian Williams. It's right up my alley. It's ambitious and strange and unique. Uh, And I think you guys would really like it. But as I say, it, it is likely to be divisive for a lot of people. At home, I only watched two films in addition to the Star Wars trilogy this week. Both of them were documentaries. The first is Empire of Dreams, the story of the Star Wars trilogy. It is a documentary directed by Edith Becker and Kevin Burns. It's a documentary on the original trilogy. It was originally included on the 2004 DVD box set, but it is now loose from that and is is streaming on Disney+, Plus, which is how I watched it, because I was not going to pay money to track down a used copy of the bonus disc of a (laughs) 16-year-old DVD release just to watch this. This is sprawling and fascinating. They got a lot of really notable names to appear in this. George Lucas is in it, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Steven Spielberg, Peter Mayhew, James Earl Jones, Anthony Daniels, Kenny Baker, Billy Williams, Frank Oz, Warwick Davis, John Williams, Urban Kirshner, Walter Cronkite, Joe Johnston, Phil Tippett, Lawrence Kasdan. I mean, they're all in this. It, it, it is really the, the final word on the story of the original Star Wars movie and its production. Uh, There is, as a result of that, a very slight official history vibe that it seems like it is sifting over some of the hardships and disagreements. It pretty much ignores George Lucas's wife, Marsha, who he divorced after the, the trilogy. Her impact on it, she edited the first film and won an Academy Award for it. She's, I mean, it, it sifts over her involvement quite a bit, but it is well paced. 
and the editing is snappy. The origins part of it is most interesting. The first hour and a half or so, how they really got that first movie off the ground when no one really thought it was going to be successful. The studio politics at Fox getting it made, the budget problems that they have, that's really interesting. I mean, that's the first hour and a half of of the movie. The, the, the next, the second hour and a half uh, is the other two films. So they go through those other two films a lot faster and there's a lot less of interest there I, unless you want to get into the the evolving storyline that's Lucas changing his mind about things along the way, which they never, ever get into. He makes some interesting corporatization comments, Lucas does, about how he he hates the state of the film industry as this corporate monolith and all of these big studios making these films that don't focus on art that are that are made by committee almost in a boardroom and then it's like oh this guy eight years later would sell his company and all of his ip to disney ha huh. not really much of an ounce of uh self-awareness no. like come on dude you're making blockbusters you basically invented the franchise blockbuster that's like alfred nobel getting shitty about people using tnt it has a lot of behind-the-scenes footage in it that's really cool. It, yeah, it's a, it's an excellent recounting. I would really like it if all movies had making of documentaries this in-depth. I mean, it's just fascinating. We know you would. But yeah. It is fascinating because you do get all of that behind-the-scenes stuff of how he just wasn't really a, a good director. Mm. In, that, in that sense, like, he's a good imaginative person, but on the first Star Wars... The actors really did have to direct themselves, and that's a whole thing that we've talked about. And it's still fascinating, though. But yeah, it's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anyone is interested. Finally, this week I watched *The People vs. George Lucas*. It is a documentary directed by Alexandre O. Philippe. Have either of you guys ever heard of this? No. No. It's about fans ranting about how George Lucas has changed the Star Wars series for 90 minutes. This is okay. this is weird, but it's well made. I forget why I put it on here, because it's sort of everything that I don't like about the Star Wars fandom all in one. I, I kind of I forget why I put it on here. I think it has something to do with the director. He The, the director is a legitimate documentary film director. He's not some fanboy right. who's gone and, and just made this thing. He's gone on to do really interesting other projects that have been on my radar. That, I think, is the reason why it's on here. Uh, but as I said, it's weird and it's well-made. It's, it's separated into these different parts. The impact of Star Wars, the special editions, the merchandise, the prequels, and Lucas himself. And it lays a respectable foundation. Most of the interviewees are well-spoken. Many of them are professionals. Yeah. In some form or another. Gary Kurtz is interviewed, the producer on A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, who had a fairly acrimonious split before Return of the Jedi and has been critical of Lucas ever since. The occasional fan fiction writer or fan video editor turn up here, yeah. but they're okay. None of them disgrace themselves, really. The special features, which include interviews with people at cons and things... Those are truly embarrassing. Like I've said before, there's nothing that the Star Wars fandom hate more than Star Wars. <laughs> yes. He's an angry man. 
his favorite thing is Star Wars, and he hates Star Wars. It starts with the impact of Star Wars, you know, the cultural impact of it, what it means to people. And that's a really respectable anchor. That's an in for this movie where they talk about the importance of it. And it actually is really, really professional. And I was on board with it. But then they get to the special editions and onwards and they start to rage. And I got about five minutes into that segment before I went and got my phone because I realized I had to take quotes. Uh (laughs) <laughs> oh boy! Uh, on on the changes in the special edition, it's like changing the Bible. It's a betrayal. <laughs> it's so stupid. This, by the way, is said by a man wearing a he farted shirt with an arrow pointing to the other guy next to him. He says that the special editions are quote so stupid. Lucas is a Holocaust denier, but for Star Wars, what? Okay, <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. That's a little much. Like carving Bill Clinton onto Mount Rushmore. (laughs) I like that one. That's funny. They go into... um, It's actually kind of an interesting thing. Interesting argument from a film preservation perspective. Sure. That that original version, Lucas claims, is gone. That it was destroyed in the re-editing for the the special editions. That that no longer exists. And that what does that mean? Does that mean that th- that loss, you know, that we're not preserving that original cultural touchstone? And that's shit. There's also some interesting arguments there as well. Well, all of these, I mean, Star Wars won the Academy Award for best production design and yeah. for best editing, but so much of that has now been altered. So, can you really say that this current version is the one that won those awards? Yeah, it's the ship of Theseus. Stuff like that. That that's kind of interesting. But I I did I did love eventually a title card comes on screen. The Library of Congress declined our repeated interview requests. <laughs> no shit. But then they start They're pretty busy. Then they start complaining about the toys and stuff. Usually, by the way, of course, they're all being interviewed in front of the walls of Star Wars merchandise that they own. There's no self-awareness yeah. here. Complaints What what complaints about the toys? Oh, the corporatization, he's sold out, man. He's, you know, that kind of thing. A gentleman says, it's like he wanked us off and now he's going, come on, there's more in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fantastic analogy. You see, that would be like me complaining about the corporatization of Batman while holding this 80-year anniversary original first appearance style pop vinyl for Batman. And there are a few sensible people in there who are expressing that sentiment. Like, as I said, there are some professionals in this, and they're all just like, oh, come on, get real people. Cry me a river. He, he's, they make them because you people buy them. <laughs> like, they're expressing that sentiment. Exactly. It's like, it's that whole thing of, so what you're basically saying is you want him to never make a film again. Mm. Like, he wanted to get money from a product that was very popular with children. It's the smart call. That's just capitalism, folks. In the prequels, when they talk about the prequels, the guy with the he farted shirt comes back to insist that the Phantom Menace is a stupid name. It is being compared to... The prequels are compared to, like, being slapped in the face with a wet fish. They they frequently mock people who like the prequels. In it, I apologize for for 
anyone who gets offended by what I'm about to say, I believe that it is appropriate for me to, to quote it in this context. But a a man on the documentary says that George Lucas and the prequels is like an overprotective parent who has retarded his child. Jesus Yikes. Christ. They move on. I stand by I stand by what I said mm. about Star Wars fans. They move on to the fans themselves. They compare themselves to battered wives. Jesus Christ. Who keep coming back to their abusive husbands. And by they get to the, the end of the movie where they start wrapping it up and they have all these broad statements of actually we really love Star Wars though. The and that they, they oh, say we're they they actually say this. We're pretty forgiving people. And another one says None of us really have any right to be angry about the prequels in the end. Yeah. This, in a movie that is 90 minutes of these people complaining. By the end of it, I was watching it as a comedy. And that yeah. really worked. The psychology of these people... On, on YouTube, it's a genre. is documentary comedy. Yeah. The, the psychology of these people is fascinating. It's like an internet forum, but smarter. As I said, a lot of these people are well-spoken, even if what they are expressing is absurd to me a lot of them are professionals but it's professionally put together there is however a a special feature on the disc of a music video of some fans quote unquote performing their song george lucas raped our childhoods so this is the kind of people we're talking about here that should give you context okay how many people on average in this documentary were white Somewhat portly and with facial hair. The vast, vast majority of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly my point. I actually, I'm, I am struggling to think off the top of my head. Like the the number of people who were not white is infinitesimally small, and the number of people who were not male is only slightly better. <laughs> like this whole thing just reminds me of a movie I quite enjoy called Fanboys. Mm. Which is the story of a couple of of a four, three or four Star Wars fanatics wanting to break into Skywalker Ranch to see Phantom Menace before it comes out and before their friend dies of a terminal illness. Mm. And the punchline at the end of the movie, when they're sitting in the cinema... Because their friend who was dying has already seen it, he got to see it at the Skywalker Ranch... And he said that he loved it and everything. Yeah, the punchline is they're sitting in the cinema, the music starts, the title crawl starts, and then one of them turns to the other and says, what if it sucks? (laughs) (laughs) That's a legitimately great movie. This is a well-made documentary, though. It's surprisingly thoughtful with some professional editing and production. The director, Alexandra O. Philippe, as I said before, he he has actual bona fides. He does a good job here. Yeah, he's a professional documentarian. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing that this even exists, but it's entertaining and it does have value, even if only as sort of a window into the kind of, of fanboy hate that has been engendered uh, towards Star Wars. It's so fascinating to me, like the complete rehabilitation of George Lucas that has happened yeah. ever since uh, the sequel trilogy started, because now there's I know, right? Now there's now there's girls, so there we have bigger problems to deal with. <laughs> um, but like, like the the fact that all of these people in this documentary are probably like the same types of people who are now like calling out for George Lucas to come back because Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson ruined Star Wars is fascinating. Yeah. 
it, it's that whole thing of it's it there's a fantastic quote from a song called big yellow taxi you don't know what you've got till it's gone and that applies to these people they oh, it, it just infuriates me have you seen have you seen it happening with uh ben affleck's batman yeah yes Recently? i absol- absolutely yeah have. yeah it's like oh the moment it's not around anymore. Oh yeah, the, like the the Justice League Snyder Cut. People people shit on every on Man of Steel and it's a Zod thing and it's Pa Kent thing. People shit on Batman v Superman, but the minute that it gets replaced, the minute it starts being replaced tinkered with, with by something the studio, seemingly more yeah, replaced with something seemingly more palatable than either Man of Steel or the political thriller. Which has very few action scenes. That is Dawn of Justice. Everyone mm. flips their shit. Yes, the Denver Post summed up this documentary pretty well. I think uh, they called it entertaining, if mildly worrisome. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems like a- an apt descriptor. In any case, that's me done for the week. What did you guys see? Where did, where did you did you get a, that as a Blu-ray? Uh, that was a, a DVD. There is like a German Blu-ray that I I think a German Blu-ray, yeah, that I couldn't track down. You can get it on YouTube. Surprisingly, not available for streaming on Disney Plus. <laughs> oh, I wonder why. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people flippantly mentioning the Holocaust would kind of put up a few red flags. This is a song of the South kind of situation. <laughs> hmm. Okay, imagine if they do put it on Disney Plus and put up the historical context warning. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect time to use it, though, right? So now we're going to get into our small mini segment, Save Me from Smallville, where we talk about the scary shit that happens in the Superman origin story, Smallville. We finished season three. But before we manage to do that, I need to talk about some intense stuff. Obviously, there's the continued presence of Alice and Mac, but that's going to become relevant. Can I just observe that it seems to me like season three has really dropped down on the creep factor. It has. Just from your general reporting. There's less moments of it. See, and th- there are some repeated things, yeah. like how we talk about Lex Luthor having a really tragic upbringing and all of this yada yada, but we don't want to keep repeating some of that same stuff that we already touched on previously, yeah. other than and- the Alison Mack thing, because that bears repeating. And there's some recurring media freaks. We already expressed how creepy their power is, so it doesn't... It, like. Like, and the general fact that whenever someone gets a power in this bloody show, they turn nuts. They just go absolutely mental and start trying to kill people and kidnap people. Lana has been kidnapped so many times, I swear they should put a bell on her. It's like, girl, get out of there. Which she eventually does by the end of the season. She moves to... She goes to Paris for school at the end of this season, and it's like, you should have done that two seasons ago, love. Season 3, episode 14, we are introduced to a character who has the ability of teleportation. She turns out to be an obsessive controlling stalker, stalking Clark, and claiming that since they both have powers, they're better than everybody else and shouldn't have to live by other people's rules. And she eventually tries to kill Lana like they all 
do. <laughs> yeah. That that's a thing. It's like yeah. Mom is the unluckiest person in that damn town. First, her parents get absolutely steamrolled by a goddamn meteor. Shit mixed by a meteor. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, she finds out her actual father doesn't want to have anything to do with her after... Tr- they, they try, but they can't do it anymore. Because it was affecting his marriage. Yeah, and... Oh, just... She suffers. Episode 18, however... Chloe gets the ability to compel others to tell the truth. This is Chloe is Alison Mack's character, ah. a character I really don't like. So w- would you would you be able to like her if she was played by someone other than Alison Mack? No, it's the way she's no. written. Okay. The character's just Alison Mack's nosy. a good actress. Yeah, that's how she convinced all those people to join that cult. Yeah, exactly. Sure, sure but I'm saying it's not fooling me. The character just rubs me the wrong way. Just for legal, just for legal purposes, we have no idea whatsoever, or at least I don't, whether Alison Mack was actually involved with recruiting people into the cult. So she was. She was. Okay. She no, she there was. you go. Yeah. Just legally, I wanted to be in the right area there. I don't want those people suing us. All of that's a matter of public record. Okay. Yeah. She gets the ability to compel others to tell the truth. And this is, like, the worst person to give that power to, because she'll always try to worm her way into finding out information she doesn't... She's super nosy, and the worst kind of journalist. Like, she straight up outs somebody. Like In the she, middle of a school In the school middle of the hallway. school, she asks uh, one of these football players who they would like to go to prom or whatever with, and he mentions another one of the football players. And, like, this is back in early 2000s, where that... This is, like, 2003. Is it, like, intentional on her part, or is... She doesn't oh, okay. know, but she doesn't she lost. care oh. about... That's not great. ...the consequences that that guy might suffer from. And that that was very uncomfortable for me. And the other characters aren't laughing about no, it. nobody else is, like, amused by that. But the rest of the seasons... The rest of the season is rather, you know, not so scary. They front-load the seasons with the scary stuff. Yeah, they tend to do that. But season three was less scary overall. Moving into season four, where we tackle something along the lines of possession, we'll get to that later on. Now we're going to play the trailer to Force Awakens. Who are you? I'm no one. I was raised to do one thing. But I've got nothing to fight for. stand in our way. I will finish what you started. There are stories about what happened. It's true. Jedi. 
force. It's calling to you. That was the theatrical trailer for Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. It is the first of three movies we are talking about today, the other two being Star Wars Episode 8, The Last Jedi, and Star Wars Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. They are all science fiction adventure movies, and together they comprise the Star Wars sequel trilogy. The first and third movie are directed by J.J. Abrams, and the middle movie was directed by Ryan Johnson. It takes place, the trilogy does, 30 years after the events of the original trilogy. The remnants of the Empire have reorganized as the First Order, and they are being led by Supreme Leader Snoke, played by Andy Serkis. Kylo Ren, played by Adam Driver, is the new Darth Vader wannabe of the First Order. And he also happens to be Ben Solo, the son of Han Solo, played by a returning Harrison Ford, and General Leia Organa, played by a returning Carrie Fisher. They are still participating in the Resistance, and they need expertise. So new recruits Ray, played by Daisy Ridley, who is Force-sensitive herself, and a defected stormtrooper named Finn, played by John Boyega, set out to find Luke Skywalker played by a returning Mark Hamill, who has disappeared into reclusivity after failing to train Ben in the ways of the Force all those years ago. So, why don't we start out by each going around and just saying off the top here our brief 30-second thoughts about the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Why don't you start us off, John? What did you think of the Star Wars sequel trilogy? I do like them. I do like them a lot. I was very excited when I knew that Star Wars was coming back, and in the cinema, when Force Awakens started and I heard the fanfare, I knew that it was it was real, it was back. And that was just so exciting for me. They, these films look amazing. The effects, the cinematography, it's all gorgeous. Are there some narrative missteps? For sure. They're trying to do sequels to the Star Wars movies. The prequel trilogy had these issues. But overall, I enjoy them. I think the acting is really well done. I love the music. I love the effects. And I actually like all three of these films. I think these sequels had a very tough task coming right out of the gate. Star Wars fans are notoriously difficult to please, and as someone who's not so much of a hardcore Star Wars fan, I had a great time with them. You've got interesting takes on characters, It's and it's just frankly great to see what's up with Han, Luke, and Leia 30 years after, to see what has become of the galaxy, and honestly, to just get more Star Wars... That, that expansion of the galaxy, seeing new types of aliens, all of that sort of stuff, it's just cool to see. I really like the first two movies of these. 
Force Awakens is great fun, if a little bit uninventive. A lot uninventive, actually, but we'll get into that. It's great, but unambitious. The The second one, The Last Jedi, I love. It is yeah. my second favourite Star Wars movie overall after Revenge of the Sith. I I think it's smart and creative and ambitious that it this one takes the franchise forward instead of repeating itself like The Force Awakens did, as good as it was. But then with The Rise of Skywalker, it's like a spontaneous combustion of an ending. It flames out in such a extraordinary manner. It's, it's the crimes of Grindelwald of the Star Wars series. Borderline incomprehensible at times, filled with narrative malpractice. It's a colourful mess. And while it is fun to watch... It is a tortured ending to the whole story of what they're going for with this sequel trilogy. And I think that, that it's probably worth starting with just a little bit of a note that I don't think anyone can argue that it was not a profound mistake that they set out to make these three movies without an overall plotline mapped out. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. You, you got to... If you're planning to do a trilogy especially something based off of previously created characters, you've got to be really specific about what you're going to do. This has been, frankly, an issue with Star Wars, as we've talked about in previous two episodes. The original trilogy wasn't set up from day dot. The prequel trilogy... it At least the prequel trilogy knew where it was going. Yeah. It knew where it was going, but there were still some serious deviations. But still, none of that compares to yeah. the the scrambling at the 11th hour to wrap it all up together it, that this one does. The fact that that they gave it to J.J. Abrams to set it up, then they gave it to Ryan Johnson, just let him do whatever they want, then they gave it to J.J. Abrams to do whatever he wanted. The fact that none of it was planned ahead, I mean, we'll talk about it in greater detail, but the Emperor Palpatine reveal in Rise of Skywalker could have been cool if they planned it, but instead... They introduce it in the opening crawl. I mean that—that's a cliffhanger. If ever I—if ever I heard one, mm. you know, end of Last Jedi, we actually hear the broadcast that he's making. Yeah, that's the ending of that movie. That's the last scene, and then we all leave the theater going, "Oh my God, Emperor Palpatine's back!" Isn't this interesting? They could yeah. hint at it in Force Awakens, tie it together, but instead they introduce it in a single line in the opening crawl, and then never explain it whatsoever within the body of the movie itself. They're trying to to square away everything without having planned it out in advance. Yeah, absolutely. There are explanations as to Puppetine's return, but that's stuff you have to look for on, like, Wikipedia and stuff like that. I feel that, yes, it should have been at the end of The Lost Jedi, like, you hear his broadcast to the galaxy, or hearing the broadcast to the galaxy is the first thing we he- actually hear out of The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Instead of just being told it, they're, they're telling, they're not showing. I, I suspect that we will get into this a lot more, because I, I have many thoughts about Rise of Skywalker. That, we know. Um, but... We touched on a lot of them previously. I I do think that... That there, there doesn't seem to be a great narrative justification for coming back to these particular characters 30 years later, even from the very beginning. Like, as much as I like 
the the first two movies, and even that I enjoy Rise of Skywalker for what it is, it, it doesn't really feel like an organic continuation. Sure. There's not. I mean, what I'm saying is, I mean, there's not a great reason for us to to come back. There's not some some great new idea that they've had to some story that they really had to bring back Han Solo and and uh, Leia and Luke to to tell. They are they are there because we decided that we all needed a trilogy sequel to the Star Wars movies. Yeah, I and this comes down to the fact that it's Disney owned this time, and this is one of the reasons why I thought they were put into, the these movies and the filmmakers and the actors were put into a pretty rough position. Like you have to admit, nothing was going to please everybody. Mm. Like the, this, as we talked before. That whole documentary about how Star Wars fans fans hate Star Wars. It's like, you're pushing a boulder uphill at that point. You need to do something fantastic like Rogue One to get a lot of people on board. But even then, not everybody's on board. Mm. The first movie, The Force Awakens, really is a repeat of A New Hope. In many, many ways. Like, it really matches it to a T, frankly. That you, you start out with... The, the young person who has force powers and they're on this desert planet and then they come across a droid that has special information so they, they make their escape. Oh, they've also got hints of having special parentage and then they're going to go go and, and meet this older character who can introduce them to the universe at large. They get waylaid by the Imperial sort of figures. They have a, a giant base, the the size of a small planet that is going to destroy other planets. They go to that base to help destroy it. The older character, the mentor figure, is killed. It, it's just, it matches it to a T. The main skeleton of it, yes. Yeah, the main skeleton is pretty much identical. What really impressed me starting Force Awakens is that opening scene that we get. We get, like, that shaky sort of lights flickering in the stormtroopers in that troop carrier. Mm. That's when I knew we were in in for something more visually and cinematographically interesting. And I'll just go out and say, I really like the idea of the turncoat stormtrooper. Yeah. Because, like, these these are... The stormtrooper is, like, the example of a throwaway like enemy enemy it's like play any star wars game you're like cutting through them like a hundred a time and the idea that we can actually interrogate what is like what life is like for us for a stormtrooper is actually really cool well they do and this is a, a positive thing that i really like about the direction that the movie takes is they do try and set up and focus on these new characters yeah we spend a lot of time with Ray and Finn. We spend a little bit of time with Poe, not as much as we will in later movies, but he was originally supposed to be killed off in this movie. He was supposed to be sucked under in the, the, the quicksand huh. in the desert. But um, Oscar Isaac convinced them that that was not a good idea. It's like, that's a high persuasion role on that one. <laughs> but, yeah, that's why there's not so much of a focus on him as there is in the, the other two. Mm. But you don't actually get to see any of the older characters until well into the movie. Han Solo and Chewbacca turn up at the 40-minute mark. I timed it. Luke doesn't turn up until 
the last scene and he has no <laughs> line of dialogue and Mark Hamill is second build. Yeah. Great work if you can get it. How long is he on screen exactly? Oh, it's like... maybe 30 seconds. Yeah. But it's like it's still really interesting to see him there at the end. But we, we get a really smart focus on these new characters and in concurrence with that, it's absolutely fantastic casting. Like, absolutely. the discovery... Oh, yeah. Of Daisy Ridley and John Boyega. Daisy Ridley in particular, I would argue. They are, they're movie stars. Yeah. They have that charisma, that screen presence that, that movie stars have. They can just hold the screen when they come on, uh, into frame. Yeah, they, they, they transition into this movie, like, effort, effortlessly. It's really impressive. And they have fantastic chemistry with each other. I really like the chemistry between Daisy Ridley and John Boyega. Which, am I crazy, or is it really in this first run, in The Force Awakens, they, they're they clearly setting up a romance, aren't they? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, in Force Awakens, That definitely. they will never, ever capitalise on no. in any way. No, but they do also really show a lot of chemistry between John Boyega and Oscar Isaacs. Mm. Like, the Finn, po- Finn and Poe thing, I'm... That's my ship, yeah. personally. We we sat down and we were like, <laughs> we honestly don't care what J.J. Abrams says. They're a gay couple. We're just going to watch it as if they are. Death of the author, baby. And I mean, we'll get into to that later on, that then Ryan, John- Ryan Johnson comes along and is totally uninterested in, in the idea of Ray and Finn as yeah. a couple and spins her yeah. off with uh, with... Kylo and spins him off with Rose, who is then indelicately yeah. dropped in the third film because people got angry. Yeah. But all all three newcomers have very easy chemistry. They do. Together. It's... And you don't find that a lot. They, they must have done a lot of screen testing with them. Yeah, And you've also got a lot of really great already known actors coming in. Oscar Isaac, for one. He's fantastic as this new sort of kind of Han Solo character. You've got Lupita Nyong'o coming in as Maz Kanata, who is just a fantastic character in her intro I like. I don't have a problem with her. She doesn't need to be in any movie other than The Force Awakens. Sure, that's fair enough. And you've got Adam Driver as Kylo Ren, who I think... While he's in the mask, cuts an intimidating figure, but the moment the mask gets taken off, you get to see Adam Driver play the character of a scared... Kid. Kid, who's been indoctrinated into this fascist system. Adam Driver is is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Like, he is just so fantastic in this. Like, he, he nails the anger better than Hayden Christensen does. Absolutely. And Hayden Christensen is very good at anger. Okay. In Revenge of the Sith. In Revenge of the Sith. He's, Hayden Christensen can shout, yes. I'm not sure I ever particularly buy the emotion behind it, but all right. We can you've agree all, to disagree You've also there. got smaller turns. They're not main characters, but you've got Dom Hall Gleason as General Hux, who's just a weak, pathetic cur as Snoke would put. And mentioning him, you got Andy Serkis as Supreme Leader Snoke, a character that I actually really enjoy. And it's a vocal performance I love. And Max von Sydow turning up in the opening scene of Force Awakens to 
get unceremoniously <laughs> killed off. I, I'm sure that I'm sure that there were a whole bunch of characters uh, of actors that were just like, "Yeah, Star Wars. I'll do Star Wars." Absolutely. I'm sure like, that's an easy get. Like, what's the one in? Um, it's it's Daniel Craig that is the stormtrooper that she does the the Jedi yeah. mind trick on. Yeah, that he just turns up for a day. Like seeing Max von Sydow in the opening of this movie is like seeing Werner Herzog in the Mandalorian, <laughs> or Giancarlo Esposito in the Mandalorian. It's, it's this kind of weird art art actor, like very art film heavy people in these, you know, very popular things. It's it's the same as when Werner Herzog did a voice role in Rick and Morty, or when he played the bad guy in. Jack Reacher or whatever. It's just bizarre to see Werner Herzog there. And it's weird to see Max von Sydow here, considering they don't give him anything to do, really. They don't really even explain who he is. They just say that he knew Ben when he was Ben. We are still towards the beginning of this Disney era of Star Wars, so I, I think it will be fun to look back in 20 years' time and see how all of that stuff has been contextualized in books and mm. in comics. I mean, we we talked mm. at length about the the behind the scenes drama of Salacious B. Crumb last week and all of these incredible hijinks that he's apparently gotten gotten up to, or that, that Kit Fisto has his own book, you know, where he and Obi Wan team up during the Clone Wars. That that these characters get explored around the edges and we are still Early, early enough on in in this thing that I I think in twenty years time we'll have that a lot more detail of those characters, whether that be through books or comics or through some of the expansion expansions that they're doing on on Disney Plus. I still think I know I say it all the time, but I still think that Disney Plus needs a Star Wars anthology show. I don't care Absolutely. if it's episodic. I don't care if it's seasonal, but Hell, it can be animated. Sure. It, it, there's just so many different corners that they could explore there. I think it's a really, I think it's a really smart use of the returning characters as well. Yeah. I think it's yeah. really smart to, to bring them back in the way that they do, to have them in the background more than I think probably a lot of people, myself included, were expecting. Yeah. I think it's very, very smart that we don't get any Luke at all in this movie until the last seconds. Yeah, absolutely. Because you really want to build up that mystery of why did he leave? Which we find out in Lost Jedi, but you want to have him be this mysterious Yoda-esque character. And I, I think it's interesting, the choice that they make to have Leia and Han broken up. Mm. I think that's not that's not what most fans expected. I I think it's probably not what most fans wanted. You know, it before before Disney uh killed the Legends canon, there were all of those new Jedi Order books and and sequel books where they got married and they had all these children and then Luke got married to some lady called Mara Jade and it was this whole thing where it was like the Skywalker solo dynasty where it was it was them you know, going on adventures together as this family unit, almost. Yeah. And for for them to just be like, no, this 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 fizzled out. The way that um, Carrie Fisher put it on the the bonus features was, they were happy for a while and then they reverted to type. Mm. 
which which is an interesting way of putting it. But I, I, I like that. I think it gives it it gives it an adult complicated emotion to their scenes yeah. together. And from what I got from the films is that when Ben turned and started serving Snoke, like Han started blaming himself, then ran off mm. to do what he's best at. Yeah. Well, it's that, that real life... And that strain thing. That real life phenomenon that you see this, that so many couples who lose a child, they have a much higher separation rate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like they stopped loving each other. They no. didn't. They just they just found that they couldn't, mm. which is very mature and something you don't expect out of Star Wars. Mm. And, and this goes to the whole sequel trilogy really is the performances of all of the cast members are really really good absolutely everyone there's there's a delicacy and a maturity to all of the performances that we certainly never got in the prequel trilogy and that we we only got in small doses in the original trilogy but everyone here seems comfortable and real and naturalistic yeah, and even when someone's sort of going over the top, like Andy Serkis with Snoke, just the quality of the vocal performance and the nuance there is just fantastic. Just as a brief aside, I was so, so disappointed when they when the hologram turned off of him and I realised that he wasn't just a giant 70-foot-tall guy. I really wanted I that. I really wanted that to be him. I really wanted like this giant BFG guy, <laughs> you know, that pulling all the strings. Wicked. Like, where, where's that planet? Where's that species? The the giant seventy foot tall people running around the place. <laughs> where everyone's huge. But you, all of these performances are more assured, and I think that's partially due to George Lucas no longer being in the director's seat. Yeah. But but oh, also, yeah. I think that they're. There is a greater level of comfort in 2015 through 2019 in dealing with all of the the spectacular uh, ideas and effects and green screen and prosthetics and, you know, creatures and robots and things than there would have been for, you know, people in the original trilogy. Sci-fi was sort of a, a, it was a B-movie still. It wasn't something that made bank. Yeah. You know, it wasn't very popular there weren't many of them made so people weren't familiar with it the actors i mean and then you go to the prequel trilogy and we we talked about how uncomfortable a lot of the actors seem with the green screen that yeah. they, their eye lines that they don't quite have it figured out yet how to incorporate that in their performance but we're we're talking now 20 years into the 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 cgi era and there's a comfort with it i mean a lot of these people have now participated in movies elsewhere that have done that thing. I mean, you've got yeah. Andy Serkis coming in, the man's Gollum, he's King Kong, he's, you know, Caesar in Planet of the Apes. So... He's he's going to be Alfred. Well, that's a, a very different type of performance from the... the Alfred is not a CGI monster that he... <laughs> well, we don't know don't about know that this. yet. We haven't seen him. Well, uh, I mean, he was in Age of Ultron where he had to... Where he had to do that scene against... Hell, Ultron all that like he's not only is he good as a cgi creature he also understands how that works in the space as an actual actor i th- i think that the first that force force awakens underutilizes layer yes 
Uh, I don't yes. think we get quite enough with her as we should. I think we could lose some of the Maz Kanata stuff and give it to her. It seems like the kind of expositionary role that she could serve as uh, just as well. And of course, we're, we are looking at this now from the lens of we were running out of time with Carrie Fisher. Yeah. At, yeah. at the time, what what they have said is that Force Awakens was going to be Han Solo's movie, which it was. Last Jedi was going to be Luke Skywalker's movie, which it was. And that Rise of Skywalker was going to be Leia's movie. And now, of course, as we've previously established, they were making it up as we go along. So who knows what they were actually really thinking. But if that's the case, it it really they, – they could have been building – they could have had some ideas about where they were taking her, some general yeah. ideas. They could have had plans for her, giving her a, a bigger part that would uh, – clearly they're setting up this relationship between her and Kylo that's going on into to The Last Jedi with him not being able to kill her. Yeah. But – Looking at it now, knowing that we're running out of time with her, I can't help but feel disappointed that there's not more of her on screen here. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the First Order, as a concept, is not well contextualized. Mm. I'm not sure who they are. I'm not sure where they come from. I'm not sure what their purpose is. Because when, like, like, okay, you had the Empire, right? You had the Empire in the original trilogy, and they were the government. They were the galactic government. They were running the show. The First Order doesn't appear to be anyone except a military arm. That seems to yeah. be all that they are. So, and they don't seem to have relationships with any governments at all. I mean, we see them destroy the Senate. The Senate are apparently financially backing the resistance who are fighting the First Order. It feels this is, it's never quite explained what the relationships between all of these organizations are. What is the resistance's relationship to the Rebel Alliance? What is their relationship to the Senate. What is the Senate's relationship to the First Order? What is the First Order's relationship to the Empire? And of course, mm. once we go into all of the the EU stuff, we find out that the First Order is born out of the remnants of the Empire. Yeah. But with what we get just coming into this movie cold, it's a little... I don't know. It, it's, it's just not very well explored. Well, I think it's really... It, it's along the lines of the original trilogy that way. We're meant to be on the back foot once again. The Resistance, Rebels, also alongside that, we visit mostly backwater planets again. Oh, sure. But w- what I'm saying is, is I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that unlike in the original trilogy, I am confused in this movie about who the First Order are. Yeah. When, I, wa- no, when I watch A New Hope, I understand who the Empire is. They're the Empire. They're the government. They're the- yeah. I'm just not sure who the First Order is. And I actually think there could have been a really interesting other version of them that they could have done, which is make them a terrorist group. Make them yeah. an insurgency. Make them Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or, or these these people who are just hitting and running, you know, that if they are born out of the ashes of the Empire, that they are they are this, this encroaching threat that is slowly building up power and is slowly radicalizing. Mm. Yeah. That would be more interesting. I just think they wanted to get back to status quo. Yeah, that's a lot of what this movie is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with the and... Starkiller base, you can't expect, you know, hit and run kinds of militias yeah. or whatever. No, no. To like, be able Lawson's to have the te- tech to blow up mm. planets. Yeah, but Lawson's talking like a from the ground up. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Approach. I like the concept of the Starkiller base. It's... 
it's taking the Death Star and like taking it to the next extreme. Mm. It's an entire planet that's been bored out, and it like drains the energy of a nearby sun, a nearby star, and uses it to destroy entire systems. Yeah. I think that's a very effective scene as well, where you watch it work. You see it destroy the Senate, as we said, but also a shit ton of other planets. I think that's a very well done scene. And it's a cool, um, it gives out a really cool environment for the ending to take place yeah. on because you, you get to have people on the ground while the planet is being destroyed. Yeah. The, the fight in the forest between Rey and Kylo and how the Earth splits in two and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. That's really fun. But you also get to have the dual thing of, you know how, how you get action stuff in a sort of Death Star-looking Imperial base and everything, but you also get, you know, a Hoth-like, snowy kind of place to have spaceship fights and stuff, and it's able to do sort of that double... It's able to do double the work in a very interesting way. On on the topic of Han Solo's death, mm. uh, Harrison Ford finally managed it, didn't he? He finally yep. got to kill him. <laughs> He's yep. been trying yep. it for years. Uh, his, his contention has always been, apparently, that Han Solo finished his character arc in A New Hope. He came yeah. back at the end of The New Hope. He joined the Resistance. That was it. That was the, that was the end of the character arc. He wanted to be killed off in Empire. Lucas convinced him to be frozen in Carbonite instead. He was convinced to come back for Return of the Jedi. He wanted to be killed off in Return of the Jedi. Lucas wanted a happy ending. And so I would bet money that one of the se- one of the first things out of their mouths when they went to pitch coming back to Harrison Ford was, he dies. <laughs> <laughs> he dies, you're in one movie, he dies. But that turns out to be a lie. Sure. Well. Well, Han is dead, but he's, yeah. you know, still rocks up. But um, I'm, I am sure that that was a selling point. And to hear Harrison Ford tell it, he's saying, you know, I never wanted... It was never that I was really jonesing for Han Solo to die. It was that I wanted him to have as strong an emotional impact and strong a narrative impact as he could have. Yeah. And the only remaining one available to him, it appeared to Harrison Ford, was to have him die. I think that I think it's really valuable. In retrospect, it's a good idea that he didn't die in the original trilogy because I think it works a lot better with him dying in the manner that he does. Absolutely. Can you imagine what this story would have looked like if Han Solo had died before the end of Return of the Jedi? It'd look like nothing. It'd look nothing similar. It's just like from the very moment that they announced that Harrison Ford was coming back for this movie, I was like, oh, he's not making it to the end credits. Yeah. What was your reaction, like, when you were in the cinema watching it, did you see in the cinema? Yes. Yeah, so what was, like, the audience response? Did you get one of those noisy audiences? No, or I was didn't. It a I got, there, there, was, there was a notable hush that came over the audience yeah. at that, at that moment. That's what we yeah. had. No, I think I recall, in the cinema, I swear, I remember it as a hush falls, and as... Han Solo falls, someone just said, no. Well, I was 
I saw it coming a mile away. The moment yeah. he stepped out on that catwalk, I'm like, I'm like, I leaned over to the person I saw it with. I probably ruined it for them. I said, Hansel is about to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they just look over at you just like, why would you do that? No, but it's a fantastic scene. <laughs> it it's, is. It's very well acted and very well staged. And the lighting goes a long way to show you the change in Kylo. When, like, the moment he makes the decision is the moment the sun gets completely enveloped. But but it's like, it is an emotionally resonant way to take him out. He yeah. gets a really, he gets easily, let's be honest, the most emotional scene of serious acting that Harrison Ford has ever gotten the opportunity to do in these movies yeah. with his last scene. Yeah. He it plays a father who sees his son... And he can't help it. He has to try. Yeah. You know, he knows, let's be honest here. He almost certainly knows how this is going to go before he yeah. goes out there. But he has to try. Yeah. Never tell him the odds. Mm-hmm. Your son, he's gone. He was weak and foolish like his father. So I destroyed him. That's what Snoke wants you to believe. But it's not true. My son is alive. No. The Supreme Leader is wise. Snoke is using you for your power. When he gets what he wants, he'll crush you. You know it's true. It's too late. No, it's not. Leave here with me. Come home. We miss you. So, and, and, and like, the way that he yells, too, the way that he yells Ben, yeah. the reveal there of the name, that it's mm. not actually Kylo, it's, mm. it's, it's Ben. Yeah. But the bit that always gets me, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant conversation. Like, yeah. it, and they, they play with it in, a really interesting way that I appreciated in Rise of Skywalker when uh, Harrison Ford comes back for a scene in that. But the thing that the bit that always gets me is is after he has run through when he reaches out and strokes Kylo's face before he falls off of the catwalk. Yeah, that that was really affecting to me this time watching it, having just come off of the original trilogy. And it's like, can you could you have imagined? That that would be how Han Solo leaves the world. Mm. Like, just loving his kid. Yeah. And just wanting him to be okay. You see, that is character growth, my dudes. And it's a fantastically acted scene from both of them. Watching that made me really, really want to see what it was like when Kylo was growing up. Mm. To actually see what it was like at the new Jedi training temple. What it was like... For Kylo Ren to have Luke Skywalker as an uncle, have Han and Leia as his parents. How Snoke got him. Yeah. Well, how Palpatine got him. I really like the lightsaber duel in the snowy forest. Yeah. It's like one of the most striking, visually. It's got the darkness really emphasizing the light coming off of the lightsabers. It's got the snow. It just looks great. It's less flashy than the prequels and less stilted than the original trilogy but it's just like that brutal middle ground 
which I really, really like. You mentioned the lighting of the lightsabers, and it was something different that they did in this trilogy, where instead of just having sticks that would then be lit up after the fact, they actually had specially made fake lightsabers that emitted a glow, a coloured glow on set. So the, the, the blue and the red being cast off of the actors' faces is real. Like, that's coming from, and, and that's hitting their faces in the in the right way. And it's hitting the, the snow around them, the trees. I mean, when you, when you think about it, when, when in the prequel trilogy did they, did they have a darkened lightsaber fight? The only one I can think of is when Anakin, for no real reason whatsoever, cuts the, the, the power in, in Dooku's getaway lair at the end of Attack of the Clones. Because he wants to have a light show, I suppose. That's the only other time I can recall them actually making a big deal out of the lights. Anakin's dropped some MDMA and he really wants to get some fancy lights in there. I mean, the it, it's in the original trilogy with the fight between Luke and Vader at the end of both 5 and 6. Yeah. But this time it looks particularly good. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you like Kylo's lightsaber? I do. Like I do. The, the nasty quality of the... Well, apparently, um, the the canon explanation for why that is is that the, the crystal that it's using, of course, all these Jedi have kyber crystals for their lightsabers, and depending on the type, that changes the colour. Well, Kylo's crystal is supposed to be cracked. It's supposed to be damaged. And that's why it's creating this weird, angry, unstable-looking laser. Yeah. And I like how it's got cross guard. Yeah, the cross guard is really sweet. For actual swords and stuff and daggers, the cross guard is meant to help with making it so that the enemy doesn't slide it down the blade and cut the hand. Mm. I honestly feel like that cross guard is only so that when he's holding it against someone, that he can dig it into their shoulder like he does to Finn. I, I legitimately think like that's the only reason why those cross guards are there it, no the, it has a practical reason too apparently it's if it was only coming out of one the one at the top it would actually explode right there's a exhaust fence technically hmm. that's cool and what about bb-8 do you guys like bb-8 i do like bb-8 i like him a he's lot got a lot of yeah. character he does I love the little thumbs up that he does <laughs> with the, the do you lighter. think it's a thumbs up we think he's doing the finger to him <laughs> of course you do. Like, but the beautiful thing is, you can read either out of it. Like, you don't have to read anyone in particular. Yeah, yeah. And he's just got such cool energy, and I like that. Moving on to the Last Jedi, that most controversial of Star Wars films. <laughs> I love it. So do I. If anyone is listening and has not figured it out by now, this is not going to be a podcast where we hate on The Last Jedi. If that's what you're after, it's, this is probably not the one for you. Yeah. I have tried really hard to understand where some of the complaints are coming from, and I just don't get it. No. I, I just can't. I legitimately can't understand it. Like, I love Revenge of the Sith, but when people complain about things in Revenge of the Sith, I'm like, all right, yeah, I can see where you're coming yeah. from. Exactly. I don't agree yeah, with you, absolutely. it's not a problem for me, but I can see where you're coming from. I, I legitimately can't see the issue that yeah. people seem to have with The Last Jedi. And I'm talking about the ones that have structural issues with the story, not the people who would, who 
and just go, feminism. It's not even yeah. worth bothering with those people. No. It's, it's not even worth giving them the time to try to think of why they think that. Like, there were no real structural issues with The Last Jedi, because you have to consider what the structure is meant to be. It's a siege movie. Yeah. Well, well, when I first saw it, the thing that I thought about was Mad Max Fury Road. It's a, yes. cha- it's yes. a yes. long it's a chase. chase movie from beginning to end. Exactly. I, I think that the problem seems to be that Ryan Johnson is insisting on in, on implementing Shades of Grey. Mm. And yeah. some people don't want that. They don't want Luke to have become a bitter old man. They want him to be Luke Skywalker, the hero. They want him to be hopeful and peppy and, you know, full of, I don't know, energy like he always was. The fact that he yeah. has become what he has become irritates them. The fact that you have that whole... I mean, I have problems with the Benicio Del Toro character because I think that the movie sort of just stops to accommodate him. But Mm. the fact that he is being used to make a statement about the industry of war. Yeah. Yeah, it's a a whole scene where he's going through the different weapons and ships. It's like, oh, Salt of the First Order, Salt of the First Order, X-Wing, Salt of the Resistance... Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And then, like, the the stuff that they do... The, the, the criticism that always annoys me is, oh, well, why doesn't Laura Dern just tell Poe Dameron what a plan is? Because he was demoted. Because yeah. he yeah. turned out to... Because he disobeyed direct orders, got a whole bunch of people killed, and was demoted. Yeah. It's like, turns out he's probably not the best person to tell. The, the, the general doesn't explain their decisions to random people in the mid-tier of the hierarchy. Yeah. And it's that whole thing of, why should she need to justify herself to Poe? She shouldn't. He's not special. Hmm. He's just a pilot. He's a good pilot, but he's just a pilot. And it's like, the entire movie is about deconstructing the idea of heroic archetypes. Like, people in Force Awakens would have seen Poe as this hard solo, quick-witted, quick-with-a-blaster-ask-questions-later kind of figure, but that doesn't work. We see the consequences of this that. This is the consequences of that kind of personality being in this situation where you are so under the thumb and so under the stress brought on by a siege. You don't need someone like that. You don't. And their plan, oddly enough, oh wow, who could have expected, doesn't work. Then there's, of course, the the layer flying through space moment. I'm fine with it. Me too. It's the Force. People are like, oh, that's not how the Force works. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yes, it is. They've always been able to manipulate air and gravity and movement. They always have. They do it to jump. Yeah, exactly. That's how Mace Windu survives that drop to the the floor of the arena in Episode 2. That's how Anakin slows his descent when he's, he's falling through all those cars. That's how Luke survives jumping around in the way that he does at the end of Empire Strikes Back. Like, and here's the other thing, too. It's like, if a Force power is shown in a new official Star Wars movie, suck it up. But it's like, the force they, can do they, that people now. don't have a problem with it when it's when it's other Force powers, do they? Like, yeah. in the past, 
Palpatine just busts out his lightning, apropos of nothing, in the third movie yep. of the series. People didn't have a problem with it. All of a sudden, the Jedi can run really fast in yeah. Phantom Menace. People didn't have a problem with it. They can they can use a force push now to push people over in the prequel trilogy. People didn't have a problem with it. They can see the future in the prequel trilogy. People didn't have a problem with it. It's it's really is nitpicking, I feel. Yeah. It's the same thing as with the force healing thing. It's like, of course they can, because the force is literally life essence. Of course you'd be able to transfer it if you were Jedi, specifically if you're reading the Jedi texts, which, if anyone would know, it's the Jedi. Let's talk about Luke and where they take him here. I love where they take him. Me too. <laughs> the first thing we see is him, like, take the lightsaber, just throw it over his shoulder. Why would he want to see it? Mm. That's the truth. That's the that's the lightsaber that was used to not only kill a bunch of children. He doesn't know that, though. Come on. But it's the lightsaber that he used when he failed to beat Vader the he, first time. That was time. something that, that Yoda was catching him up on when they were sitting in Dagobah, you know, kill children he did. No, like, just think about it this way. Rey was getting those force visions from touching that lightsaber. It's not absurd to think that maybe Luke at some point could, like, feel, like, terrible energy coming off of it, and it's now just like, yeah, let's not. But, like, it represents everything that he's tried to get away from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it represents the entire thesis of the film of don't put your heroes on a pedestal because they're people. Yeah. And then J.J. Abrams gotta gotta bring in that, that shitty repudiation of the of that scene because everyone got mad. He's got to bring in the repudiation of it in Rise of Skywalker where Luke, the ghost Luke captures it as it's being thrown into the fire and says a Jedi's weapon deserves more respect. I'm like, oh, I get it because everyone hated that last movie. Like, and personally, it's like they keep referring to the blue lightsaber as Luke's lightsaber. Not really. He had the green mm. one. It's like, that's his lightsaber that he built. Yeah. The blue one is Anakin's lightsaber. I love all of the the stories he tells about the failure of the original Jedi Order, about how they let this evil man take control. He he says the Force isn't a power that someone uses; it's the space in between life, death, violence, and peace. It's a Force. It doesn't belong to anyone. The Force doesn't belong to the Jedi. Well, it's what you were talking about in our episode of the prequel trilogy, Sean. The the idea of the uh, the corruption of the Jedi Order and the arrogance yeah. of them. That this is something that Ryan Johnson has clocked in on yeah. uh, in, in the original conception of, of Lucas in the past movies. And he's exploring that idea in greater and more explicit detail. That, yeah. that Luke, in his arrogance, made this mistake. Yeah. I I love that we get those three different versions of the night that Kylo turns. Because that also is a microcosm of the Force as well. It's between these two polar opposite views of the thing, there is the truth. Mm. The Force. I, I love that they actually go there that they actually have Luke be that have that moment of weakness yeah 
that ultimately turns to all the shit. I, I really like that. And I like that it's his fault. Yeah. It's so much more emotionally complicated than we've been asked to accept in Star Wars movies before. Absolutely. I mean, Anakin really is the only... The, the fall of Anakin is really the only other emotionally complicated thing that we've 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 seen in in star wars films prior to this and let's be perfectly honest it wasn't handled that great no no it it was it was underwritten that transition whereas this is a lot more delicate and nuanced and complicated and mature i i i like the island of octo Uh, and and the denizen the denizens of the island those the the caretakers i love how pissed off they get the 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 big thing that Luke gets the green milk out of, it's like it looks down at Ray going, "Don't stare, pervert." It's like you weren't part of this agreement. <laughs> if you stare, you're making it weird. That island is a real island in Ireland, Skellig Island. It used to be a monastery in the the the, the Dark Ages. Yeah, like can you imagine yeah. in like the 14th century or something living on that island? Away from, like, just the com- total and complete lack of communication with the outside world. My God. You'd go mad. Yeah. Apparently, it's like 600 steps from arriving to the island to where they needed to be to shoot. And Mark Hamill was so over it the very first day that he asked whether it would be possible for them to just bring him a tent and he would stay there while they were shooting. <laughs> but it was a World <laughs> Heritage site, so he's not allowed to. Yeah. Which, which by the way, the, the Porgs are in the movie because that island is infested with puffins and they yeah. can't touch any of the puffins. So they can't have puffins going around the place on this alien planet. So they just digitally pasted over them all with Porgs. And the Porgs are, are adorable. I love this scene where they're touching and like stepping on the lightsaber mm. and like they almost get roasted. <laughs> Almost. Or like, or like the scene where they're they're judging Chewbacca yes. as, he, as he roasts one of them. <laughs> it's just like staring up at him, just like whimpering. Yes. Oh, um, I love I also that. like it like at the end when Chewbacca's Chewbacca roars when they're flying around in the the pork jumps up and roars as well. For the most part I think like that's another thing that the movie gets some shit for, it's is the humour. Uh, I like most of it. I think the only yeah. thing that doesn't really work for me is the your mum joke. <laughs> uh, that just feels a little out of step with yeah. Star Wars as a general yeah. concept. But I do like the keeping him on hold thing. Hi, I'm holding for General Hux. This is Hux. You and your friends are doomed. We will wipe your filth from the galaxy. Okay, I'll hold. Hello? Hello? Yep, I'm still here. Can you... Can he hear me? Hugs? He can. With an H? Skinny guy? Kind of pasty? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Look, I can't hold forever. If you reach him, tell him Leia has an urgent message for him. I believe he's tooling with you, sir. About his mother. Open fire! And however, I will I will say that uh, it's it's a hell of a lot better. All of it is so, so much better than what they end up doing in Rise of Skywalker with the capital B banter that they have going on in that movie. Oh, they fly now! They fly now! They fly now! I like how much Hux, get, Hux gets bullied a lot. 
Yeah. He gets, like, thrown around the room, and, like, Domahawk Gleason's a great actor, and you really get more of what it's like to be that sort of admiral character. Yes. Yes. But survive? Yeah. I like whenever he steps on, like, Carlos' toes when it comes to giving orders. That's funny. See, and this is the interesting um, thing that, again, would have been so much better if they planned it, that we will that they retcon, they make him a traitor to the First Order in the third movie, but they make him a traitor because he really wants to stick it to Kylo Ren. Yeah. But if, yeah. what if they'd had that planned from the start? What if they'd actually just had him be an informant the whole way through this trilogy? And then when you get that reveal in the third one, you're like, oh, when he's reaching for his gun, when Kylo's on the ground at the end there, that's a whole different thing watching it. It's not out of just pure hatred. Everything that he's doing, the way that he's second guessing things, the way that he is trying to convince everyone to go against what Kylo Ren is pushing or, or, you know, drawing drawing uh, un- seemingly undercutting things which looks yeah. like it's just you know vicious backstabbing actually he's really just trying to direct things like that would have been so much more interesting but of course like it's like you could have it still be out of spite but like it would complicate the character a little more yeah. which is a good yeah. thing i mean and and that's i just can't fathom that this is the same company that has obsessive compulsively mapped out every Marvel movie for the next 15 years <laughs> that they know now what they're going to release in 2031 and what the story for it's going to be and, you know, what the, the crossovers are all going to be. And then there's these TV shows that they've got planned out for years to come. How is it this same company that is just like, oh, yeah, we'll just see what happens. I'm sure it'll be fine. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not even just the Marvel thing, but Disney just in general is so hyper controlling over everything mm. that it does. I mean, I mean, look at their, their live action remake schedule. They have this planned out to a T. Yeah. It's like, it's borderline uncomfortable. It's kind of extraordinary. The lackada- lackadaisical manner with which they have handled one of the biggest franchises in cinema history. Well, it's one of those things where Force Awakens comes out, people like it, but they don't love it. It's sort of just a Star Wars movie. It's See, nothing... I feel like I feel like people loved it before The Last Jedi, and I think that yeah. after people turned on The Last Jedi, it re- it's retroactively become that the whole trilogy is mm. not as good. But it's a thing of, like, critics, like... The critic score of Last Jedi is high, but the audience score is low. Hmm. Whereas Rise of Skywalker, the audience score is high, whereas the critic score is low. And it's this interesting thing of not being able to please either of them enough. Like, one of the things that they really emphasize in The Last Jedi is the connection between Kylo Ren and Rey. Hmm. Um, And the fact they are much closer in connection to the force then initially presented they are almost mirrors of each other in a way which leads to a lot of like a lot of like real tension can i particularly in that scene where luke walks in on the fingers touching and the way that the 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 walls of the hut blast apart i feel like the nun things would get super pissed off about that can i just say the sigh of relief i had watching this movie when they said that Ray's parents were nobody. 
I was yeah. like, thank God. Yeah. I didn't need any yeah. of it. And then, of course, we get to Rise of Skywalker and JJ's like, no, no, don't worry, everyone, settle down. She's actually Emperor Palpatine's granddaughter. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. Why does everyone got to be related to each other? What's the point of it? Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, what they were trying to say with Lost Skywalker is, or Lost Jedi, sorry, is that you don't have to be a Skywalker. You don't have to be a Kenobi. You don't have to be connected to this dynasty of people. You can just be a person. If I, if I fly to the other side of the the world, I wouldn't be related to anyone would, there, would I? You know, I wouldn't just happen to run into the the grandson of my grandfather's old employee. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's an absurd notion that it makes the galaxy so small. It makes the galaxy so mm. so small. I mean, I will like the Vader father thing works for me, but we already mentioned in origin in the original trilogy episode that Leia being Luke's sister is totally and completely irrelevant. Yeah, there's there's no there's no point to to that introduction to even 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 if you just had this sequel trilogy be exactly the same. There's no reason whatsoever that that they could not have the exact same story, except Luke is just a friend of of Leia and Han Solo who failed their son, yeah, rather than it being his nephew. I mean, there's no justification for it. It's just like, oh no, everyone's special. Everyone's connected to each other. I mean, I remember all of the theorizing. Oh, maybe she's Obi Wan Kenobi's granddaughter. Maybe, maybe she's this. Maybe she's that. And why does she have to be anything? Mm. I I agree. That that was like the one gripe I had with Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, I personally speaking, I I recognize that other people have other issues with it, <laughs> but uh, they're issues I myself didn't have. Mm. And I I really liked how at the end of the Last Jedi. We see that bit with the kid who's been, like, enslaved, and he just reaches out and eff- effortlessly uses the force to pull the broom to yeah. his hand. As if it's nothing. And As if it's nothing, and that is what... That was so important yeah. that anybody could be a Jedi, or anybody could be a Sith. Anybody could have been anything. And it's the potential that the Palpatine reveal just... Yeah. rips away. And what do you think of Holdo as a character? I love her. She's great. I like her. I think Laura Dern seems kind of uncomfortable. I think she seems yeah. kind of a little bit out of sync with the rest of the movie. She's the one one performance in this movie where I think that she just doesn't quite know how to fit into the Star Wars house style. Like, the scene where she's talking to Leia, though, that works. You can tell that they've been friends. I love, I adore her exit from the movie. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. The Holdo maneuver, the way that all of the colour and the sound goes out. Mm. I mean, it's glorious. This actually seems like kind of a, a jumping off point to something that I have been considering really ever since this movie came out, which is whether it might have been more beneficial for them to refilm some parts of the movie after Carrie Fisher's death. Mm. And to, yeah. I, I feel like there's two opportunities that you have in this film to kill off Leia in this film in a way that is more satisfying than Force Awakens. Mm. The first... Rise of Skywalker. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker, sorry. The first is the very obvious one. It's when she gets blasted out into space. Yeah. 
that you just have her exit the movie, then it 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 is a very tragic, heartbreaking moment. It sort of you can really lean into the psychology of how that affects Kylo and his turn against Snoke later in the movie. Because he's not the one who did it. It was the two other TIE fighters. Because he couldn't do it. It kicks the fans in the dick as well because it's so sudden. Mm. You don't get final words. It's just bam. Yeah. Gone. The other opportunity would have required digital doubling and would have required a a great deal of manoeuvring. But the other opportunity would have been to give her Holdo's death. Mm. And to have Holdo assume the role in uh, in Rise of Skywalker as the general, the leader of the Resistance. Mm. Yeah. That you, through digital doubling, through CGI recreation, you, you, you get Billy Lord in to do what she did with some of the flashbacks in Rise of Skywalker, that Leia is the one that sacrifices herself there to save the Resistance. I think that no matter which of those choices... You make though, if you do decide to kill her off in Rise of in Last Jedi, it robs the movie of one of its absolute best scenes, which is where she sees Luke again. Yeah, yeah. I I can't really reconcile my uh, my desire for her to have a better exit than she get than she gets in Rise of Skywalker. I can't really reconcile that with. With the idea of losing that scene at the end of Last Jedi, because yeah, yeah. I really adore it. Like her, the line that she says when um, Luke comes up to her, "I know what you're thinking. I've changed my hair." Um, that was improvised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Hamill, like the master that he is, just went with it. And was like, "It looks yeah. nice." Because they've known each other. They had known each other forever. Yeah. They were friends forever. Uh, Mark Hamill was in his mid-twenties when he did A New Hope. Carrie Fisher was, I think, 19. Like, they have known each other almost all of their adult lives. It's such a, it's, it's such a sweet scene, and I'm not sure I could bear to lose it. I know what you're going to say. I changed my hair. It's nice that way. Man. I'm sorry. I know. I know you are. I'm just glad you're here. At the end. I came to face him, Leia. And I can't save him. I held out hope for so long, but... I know my son's gone. No one's ever really gone. I sympathise with the filmmakers for the challenge that they were given, that no one wanted to be in that situation. They did the best that they thought that they could, but I really am not happy with Leia's inclusion in Rise of Skywalker. I think it... Okay, like, Snoke eats shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That's fun. It's that whole thing of everything that you think is going to happen is not going to happen. It's And it's the, um, like, he gets that, that big evil villain TM monologue yeah. beforehand. <laughs> My worthy apprentice, son of darkness, heir apparent to Lord Vader, where there was conflict, I now sense resolve. Where there was weakness, strength, complete your training and fulfill your 
destiny. He, he gets to run through, <laughs> like, the greatest hits of Sith Masters, and it's fantastic. You even hear Palpatine's theme when he's torturing Rey. Mm. Like, he does the whole shebang. Again, the way that they, they retcon Snoke is kind of irritating to me in Rise of Skywalker. That I think that... that and people will say, oh, it's because Ryan Johnson backed him in a corner. I'm like, no, there are a whole bunch of of ways that you could have kept an impact of Snoke and kept him a legitimate villain in Rise of Skywalker, even though he's dead. You know, that, that mm. his, he doesn't have to have been a pointless puppet of Palpatine's. But I, I love also the way that he, he taunts Kylo earlier on in the movie, just yeah. basically tells him that he's cosplaying as Darth Vader. Yeah. I love that entire scene because that is essentially what a specific section of the Star Wars fandom had to say about that final lightsaber battle. How, he, how Snoke goes, You were bested by a girl who had never even held a lightsaber. You failed! And I, I love also that Ryan Johnson, as quickly as he possibly can, gets rid of the mask for yeah. Kylo. Uh, I, I love that also that he mocks the mask too. That that Snoke's like, take that ridiculous thing off. Take that ridiculous thing off. And if if you can hear it when he's speaking with the mask on, it is unlike in Force Awakens, really is kind of muffling his voice mm. and it's muffling his words. And I think that was such a smart call because you don't want him in the mask for this movie because you want to see the conflict on his face. I, I can't really... I, I wasn't able to in, in Force Awakens either that his his legitimacy takes a hit from the mask for me. Yeah. Like, it really does... It makes me hyper aware of the fact that I'm being... That I'm that this is fan service. I don't like the design of the mask, really. I think it look kind of looks um, like a cross between Lord Helmet in Spaceballs and Lord Buckethead in British politics. <laughs> I love Lord Buckethead, by the way. Total, total oh, side yeah. tangent, but I love the the, the general um, uh, piss take that that Lord Buckethead has, and and the fact that they have that that thing where he he ends up they all of the candidates gather together to have the results announced, and so he's on stage with all of the other more legitimate yeah. candidates candidates dressed in a cape with a giant bucket on his head. Your Prime Minister, your MP, Theresa May, called this election about Brexit. Have we heard from her what she plans to do about Brexit? No. This is mad. On Thursday, you are going to be faced with Prime Minister May or Prime Minister Corbyn against 27 Prime Ministers from the European Union. It will be a shit show. And, you know, it's it's interesting to see. You don't see a lot of other candidates wearing capes anymore. So it's good to see capes get back into the... Into politics. That's what you can say about Star Wars. They got a lot of capes. He cracks me up. But, but just really just quickly with the mask thing. And then it's again something that J.J. Abrams, when he, he gets the reins again, just fussily comes in and it's like, oh, it's all right, guys, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I'll, I'll have him remake his mask, even though it was clearly 
pulverized in Last Jedi. Like it, it wasn't it wasn't shattered into pieces that could be put back together like a like a vase. It was like put turned into mulch. Yeah, I I do, however, like the like the red in the mask. That's cool aesthetic. Yeah, but it it was another one of those. Oh, guys, come on! It's all right, but also you got to think about it. Toys. Mm. Oh, well, we skipped over that, which was C three PO and Force Awakens turning up with a red the arm, red arm, and them talking a lot. Oh, well, we really wanted to illustrate that thirty years have gone by, and we wanted to do that thing where you'll see a friend that you haven't seen in all these years, and you know there's something about them that's different. They've changed their hair, or they've got a scar that they didn't have before, and that's really what we wanted to do. Bullshit! You wanted to sell a new toy of C-3PO with the red arm. You wanted yeah. to make it so that people who wanted to play with their Force Awakens toy couldn't just use their old C-3PO toy because he has a red arm now. That is yeah. the purpose of this. Let's not pretend otherwise. Yeah. I do love, though, I do love that beat. I, I like C-3PO a lot. I like him in the sequel trilogy more than I do in either of the other two. I think mm. he's a lot funnier. The way that he... Pops into frame in Force Awakens. <laughs> Goodness! Han Solo! It is I, C-3PO. You probably don't recognise me because of the red arm. <laughs> it's it's like it's like Anthony Daniels was having fun with the mm. idea that they gave 3PO a new design. He is maybe one of my favourite parts of Rise of Skywalker, and I think we should probably save the 3PO discussion until then. But right. Fair yeah, enough. absolutely. Um, I like the battle on crate. Yes, it looks gorgeous. That's very. That's such striking imagery. This very red planet that's covered in that salt. Yeah, and you even get the hints. It ties into the hints that you get if you're paying attention, and that Luke is not really what he appears to be. I mean, first yeah. off, he turns up with with. He's apparently dyed his hair before he left. Yeah, it's how he it's how he looked yeah, in those exactly. flashbacks. He has the blue lightsaber, which has just been destroyed in space above. Yeah, uh, and when he when he moves in his fight with Kylo, Kylo kicks up the salt, but Luke doesn't. Yeah. Um, but I do like when they all fire on the image of Luke, and then when the dust clears, he just like brushes his shoulder. It's like, bitch, it's like, you're not even come there. On, stop it. Stop being such a queen, Luke. Come on. <laughs> Do you think you got him? But I also love the the the, the final reveal when Kylo figures it out, where yeah. Luke just smiles at him and says, "See you around, kid," and disappears. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that scene is yeah. I love everything that happens on Crate because when you're seeing guys get blasted, how it comes up with the red dust from the planet it looks like these people are being blown to absolute smithereens and it's an interesting obfuscation while also putting across sort of the general idea of that i mean the the look of this movie is astounding it's it's beautiful i mean the the cgi is inc- and this goes for really all of the movies all of them yeah the the design is of everything is so striking. The CGI is brilliant. I mean, Snoke is such an incredible CGI uh, creation. Love him in his gold friggin' bathrobe. All of the the space battles look extraordinary. They look fantastic. The blend of practical and digital effects are great. 
most of the uh, most of the stormtroopers that you see are actually extras in costumes, not just Tamura Morrison digitally recreated ad infinitum in CGI. The look of the movies are great. And speaking yeah. of great, yeah. um, we, the one big portion of, of Last Jedi we haven't really touched on is Rose and the Canto yeah. Bite segment. I love the Canto Bite section. I love it. I particularly love that little dude who was like putting the <laughs> yeah. coins into BB-8. And then when he gets covered in the coins, mm. he's just like loving it. I, I love all of the designs. Yeah. Of the aliens in that segment, I I love all of the designs. Like I that's love the, the guy who's talking to the police about them parking the like you can't park on that's a public beach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like it's an alien with a southern accent. But it's all of these like incredible new alien designs that we've never seen yeah. in Star Wars before, and it's just like oh, I want to see more of these guys. I want to see more of this species. They're, they're just great designs, and yeah. it's. It's just this this colourful blitz of of information and world building, the type that you got in the mosaics of the cantina or in Jabba's yeah. palace. That there are just here are all of these. Here is here is no this this is this is a universe. This is a galactic yeah. universe, and here are all of these species from all of these different places. I do think that the movie that it, it ties into my problem with Benicio del Toro's character, which is. The movie does kind of just stop so that Ryan Johnson can make his point. Um, yeah. But I, 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 the, the design of it especially, I love the chase on the backs of those those animals. I, I love. I love I th- the music. I love how it goes into the whole like Las Vegas esque like Brazil motif. I think that's. A fantastic piece of music. I do have a problem with Rose as a character. I don't think Mm. that she's particularly interesting or well fleshed out. I think she tells us in dialogue a lot of what her character is rather than showing us. And I don't think that she has much chemistry with John Boyega. Mm. And this isn't an issue with the actor. No, no, it isn't. Like the way that she was treated was repulsive. Yeah, yeah, and when we get with to, her, but when we get to her on crates where she kamikazes Finn out of the sky, and she's like, "It's has a nonsensical line." Let's be honest. Yeah, we're yeah. not going to win by fighting what we hate. We're going to win by protecting what we love, which is immediately punctuated by a big laser firing into where yeah. everyone else is sheltering. Like, again, yeah. I leaned over to the person I saw the movie with, and I said, she didn't love all those other people. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> and it's like, that is literally what he was trying to do. He was trying to save what he loved. And then she gives him a kiss, which comes out of nowhere, because as I said, they have no romantic chemistry. And I just was like, watching it this time, I I just couldn't help but imagine, you know him just staring at her like what like just standing up and being like what is wrong with you <laughs> like, no, like when i first saw this the moment she kissed him i i just started looking at boyega's face and he's got such a look of confusion on him like finn is just like what i love the way also that they they include that loaded shot of ray looking at Rose chatting with Finn on the Millennium Falcon at the end, like, stay away from my man, bitch. <laughs> like... <laughs> it's like, 
Whereas Poe is comfortable sharing Finn with other people in a non-romantic context. I wouldn't have minded if Finn went out in this movie. Yeah, in it's a fashion. good ending for yeah. him. Yeah. It's a change. They certainly you know? didn't have anything for him to do in the next movie. So why not send yeah. him out in this one? And, and you know, it would have given, like, it would have really helped sell some of the the despair at that moment. Yeah. It would have really helped sell, oh, the resistance is now on its last legs. It's, it's, yeah. it's barely still standing. And it would also finish his character arc where mm-hmm. he has gone from being part of the First Order to, like, basically giving his life to destroy them. Yeah, he, he, goes, he goes from coward to martyr. That reminds me. Why the hell is Captain Phasma in this movie? Like, what is her purpose? She just, she just like, last time we saw her, she was being thrown into a trash compactor on a planet that was about to explode. And then she just turns up in the third act to be like, surprise, I'm still here for five yeah. minutes, and then I'm going to die for real this time. Everyone's favorite. Well, I'm back. Captain Phasma, you all love me, right? I mean, it's a cool design. Sure, but it was a character who barely had reason to exist in The Force Awakens, let alone to be pulled back for no reason whatsoever. I mean, I suppose we get Finn... Finn gets to have his heroic fight that can be... I I do, however, like the... You're, you've always been scum, rebel scum. That that's a great. I like that a lot. I mean, that whole part of it, the what's going on with with the resistance ships trying to get away, Holdo doing her her Holdo maneuver, the fight in the throne room, which is extraordinary. Like that, oh, yeah. that one shot where yeah. uh, where Kylo gets a hold of the lightsaber, places the hilt up to a stormtrooper's head, and just briefly turns it on. Yeah. The, that the way that that's all cut together. I mean, uh, that's so extraordinary. Like that's yeah. the great one yeah. of the greatest action moments, action sequences in in the entire franchise, in my opinion. But we should talk about Yoda. Mm. Uh, I think that's might be the greatest scene in all of Star Wars. So it is time for the Jedi Order to end. Time it is. For you to look at a pile of old books. The sacred Jedi texts. Oh, read them, have you? Well, on page turners, they were not. Yes, yes, yes. Wisdom they held, but that library contained nothing that the girl Ray does not already possess. It, it, it's basically Rian Johnson saying, look, you can respect the past, and also look to the future. Because you got Yoda, he's saying, you've forgotten all of the lessons I tried to teach you. It's not about all of this. It's about the Force. It's about what's in people. I can't be what she needs me to be. Heeded my words not, did you? Pass on what you have learned. Strength, mastery, but weakness, folly. Failure also. Yes, failure, most of all. The greatest teacher failure is. <laughs> Luke. We are what they grow beyond. 
That is the true burden of all masters. And I just love how it's the puppet again. I start, I got teary-eyed when he showed up when we watched it for the first time. Because I was like, holy shit, Yoda is a- able to now finish his arc of becoming a true mentor again. It's the culmination of Yoda's character arc as well. Hmm. And I've got a picture here of somebody had tweeted out something truly awful uh, to Rian Johnson. Ryan Johnson. Saying, right. Ryan, Ryan Johnson. This says, I'm still not over your awful Star Wars entry that shed all over everything. I hope one day someone breaks something you cherish, Ryan. <laughs> and I hope one day you realize what you did and you apologize every day for the rest <laughs> of your life. Every day for your rest of life is in caps, by the way. Uh, I hope you feel that amount of pain. Then Frank Oz, the voice of Yoda, responded to that one comment and said, It's sad to me that you've harbored this internal darkness for so long about a movie. Ryan is a great director, writer, and human being. Please try to understand that writers and directors are not there to fulfill the audience's expectations. Good work breaks expectations. Yeah. And that's what... That sums up my opinion of Last Jedi. It breaks expectations. And that's what Star Wars desperately needed. Well, let's move on to The Rise of Skywalker. The last film in the Skywalker franchise. They keep promising us. They... I like how this starts. Um, not with the title crawl and the Palpatine thing. We've talked about that already. Uh, I like the Kylo Ren going through that forest. The journey to like Exegol. Ky- yeah, the Kylo Ren theme blaring. That lead motive, by the way, great job on that, John Williams. It's very striking. But I love the line that Palpatine says to Kylo Ren when he's going down the thing in Exegol. I am every ver- voice you have ever heard inside your head. He starts off like Palpatine's voice, then he doubles Snoke's, and then he does Vader's voice. <laughs> like, so throughout this entire time, Palpatine's been in his head. Yeah. Like, messing with him. And we should have known that somebody was in his head because Vader became Anakin again. Yeah. Why would the ghost of Anakin be talking to. Anybody through an old Darth Vader helmet. Exactly. Can I just say from the top what an extraordinarily stupid title The Rise of Skywalker is? Sure, what else could it have been? Well, the original title for it when it was in development was Jewel of the Fates. That would have been sick. Yes. That would have been sick as hell. Instantly, so much better. Yeah. There isn't even a living Skywalker in the movie. There is no Skywalker rising not technically, no. Not yeah. at all, Harley. Not legally. <laughs> it's like, calling yourself Ray Skywalker, Skywalker at the end, that's not legally binding. No. You said it to some random woman in the middle of the desert. It doesn't count. <laughs> uh, the, the Colin Trevorrow draft of the script, back before he left the project, has leaked online. Yeah. And has been validated. Yeah. It has been confirmed by a number of, sort, by a number of outlets to have been an, a, an actual version. Hmm. So that was the one that was called uh, Duel of the Fates. I mean, here we go. I'm reading from an article here in Collider. Kylo Ren still dies at the end of Duel of the Fates, but his arc in the film, as well as Rey's, is completely different. 
For one, there's no Emperor Palpatine. At the beginning of the movie, Kylo Ren has vanished off to Mustafar, Darth Vader's lava planet, and he's wallowing around in Vader's old castle. There, he's haunted by the force ghost of Luke Skywalker, and even fights a hallucinatory version of Darth Vader, a la Luke's fight in the cave. He comes into contact with the Sith teacher of Palpatine, Tor Valum, via an ancient Sith device as he's trying to put an end to the Jedi and the Sith once and for all. But he's gone bad, bad, bad in this version of the story. Rey, meanwhile, still believes there's good in Kylo Ren and has teamed up with Poe to put an end to the Jedi and Sith in her own way. And Rey's parents? Still nobody. Rey is not a Palpatine. But Kylo Ren had them killed at the behest of... But Kylo Ren killed them at the behest of Snoke. The finale of the movie finds Rey and Kylo Ren duking it out on the mystical planet Mortis, with Rey getting an assist from the Force ghosts of Luke, Obi-Wan, and Yoda. The Jedi try unsuccessfully to bring Kylo Ren back to the light, but he's too far gone, and in the end he is, quote, extinguished, unquote. So... I like that a lot more. I like mm. the idea that Kylo Ren doesn't turn back. He doesn't go through the, the arc that we were expecting him to go through from the very beginning. I like the idea. It, it, I've done looking at other articles and things about that. This character of, I think, what was it, Tor Valum, this this Sith teacher, he exists basically on Exegol, the, mm. the, the, or the original Sith planet, and he is this Cthulhu-esque Lovecraftian always being who's always been around and is the source of all evil, basically, in the galaxy, is, is what I understand it. Uh, and that, that is this sort of, he's this gigantic tentacly creature. Like, there's just so much there that is more appealing to me than what we got. It's a little bit of cosmic horror. Um, okay, there's one addition that I really, really, really appreciate in Rise of Skywalker. It's a new type of character. It's a new type of alien, completely. It is the character Claude, uh, spelled K-L-A-U-D. I'm not going to go into what he is, because I truly don't care. I'm going to read you a segment from the novelization for The Rise of Skywalker. Poe followed Chewie, passing RTD2 and Claude on his way to the cockpit. Claude, I hope you got that surge, f- surge fixed, Poe hollered. They were trying to fix a pesky short that had been working its way through the Falcon's electronics ever since their last mission. Poe had no idea what species Claude was, or where he came from, and he thought General Leia was losing her mind when she assigned him to Rose's mechanic team. For one, he has no arms. In fact, Poe thought he looked like a giant slug on flippers. For two, he spoke a language only the droids understood. But it turned out to be a good decision because Claude could occasionally manipulate objects with his prehensile antennae, and his keen mind made short work of mechanical problems. He and R2D2 worked well together. I love Claude. There's this, there's this like, there's this um Reddit page called Saltier Than Claude, uh, which is based on the Saltier Than Crate, which is a compilation of people whinging about Star Wars, mm, yeah, because you know salt and all that. But Saltier Than Claude found. Is like full of this one guy's photoshops injecting Claude into <laughs> almost every scene from every other Star Wars movie. He's also he's also begun like putting Claude into real life contexts, other films completely. <laughs> like I I'm think looking there's at a bit it right of, now. I think he's put Claude in Shrek at one point. See when you said this new character, this new species, the one new addition to Rise of Skywalker you really love. Oh, you were saying Babu Frick. Exactly. I thought that was where you were going. Well, Babu Frick's great, He's a legend. 
I love his energy. Voiced by the woman who played Moaning Myrtle in the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. Apparently, she did an interview where she was like, oh, Bobby Frick has a whole backstory that I've, I figured out about him with J.J. Abrams. Like, he's he has lost loves. He's got a fully fleshed out past. And I'm just sitting there like, yes, can we please get Frick a Star Wars story? Have him, like, team up with Claude. I love his patter with C-3PO. Yeah. That when C-3PO's mind gets wiped, he, he wakes up again, he says, I am C-3PO, human cyborg relations, and you are? Okay, that's going to be a problem. Hello, I bubble freak. Why, hello. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, at the end, like, it's the one cheer moment, like, that I had towards the end, because I, I, I was really having a lot of trouble with the finale and all of the Empire stuff, and there's a, uh, all of the Emperor stuff, and there's a cult now, and all that stuff. But then when, uh, when what's her name, Carrie Russell's character turns back up, and then Babu Frick just pops up in a frame and goes, <laughs> Best part of the whole movie. <laughs> Best part of the whole movie. <laughs> uh, it is good to see. So... There's not really much more to say about Poe and uh, Finn in this because you I, really don't. Get I much... hate. I really hate their patter in this. Their banter. Hmm. I think it's really, really forced. It's not like it was yeah. in the in Force Awakens, where that was apparently a lot of improvisation by Oscar Isaac and John Boyega. It yeah. feels really, really forced now, like a bad version of the the Iron Man kind of patter that you you get in marvel movies and yeah i mean the whole it's it, are we supposed to find it amusing that they go oh they fly now they fly now they fly now look at the facebook messenger he sent a picture Claude <laughs> uh, flies now for the listeners this is claude has been inserted into that scene replacing the Stormtrooper, and a subtitle over John Boyega reads, Claude flies now. <laughs> I did love that scene, though. I loved all that stuff on the desert, because you really get a good idea of how the, all of this has affected Ray, like, being told that her parents were nothing and that they sold her is really playing on her mind. And I love the music in that speeder chase. I think it's a fantastic track. Hmm. I like the bit where they get the hook and the rope and they like attach yeah. it to the it goes under the wheel and they like do that swinging maneuver. Yeah. And obviously Lando come coming back. Hmm. Yeah. Lando. He still got it. Still charming as hell. Well, we talked a little bit about the the C3PO memory wipe thing here. Hmm. And just to return to that this it it really sort of sums up for me the the general incompetence that i i perceive to be throughout the the script here it's built up to be this huge moment oh c3po he's going to lose his memories he's not going to know who everyone was he's been one of the chroniclers of this this series right from the very beginning he's one of the only characters to have been in everyone and he's going to you know, sacrifice his memory and basically his his experiences for his friends. Yeah. And then it's like, 
But it's okay, guys. R2-D2 has a backup. And sure, they said earlier on that that R2-D2's backup wasn't reliable. But C-3PO's back. There were no consequences at all. I love the idea that R2-D2 just removed some of his more annoying personality traits while he was at it. (laughs) But you, you, you get what I mean? It's like... It's there is yeah. no consequence whatsoever. It builds it up as being this extremely important character moment on mm. an extremely yeah. emotional moment, and then they just totally undercut it. I didn't really feel the emotion of it, to be honest. He says, "A oh, one last look at my friends. We barely, you barely spent time <laughs> with any with these three. Well, it's Chewbacca. Chewbacca is the only one trilogy. there that he's actually hung out with." Chewbacca's no, not there. Oh, right. He's, 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 on the, yeah. he's not there anymore. <laughs> it's like, saying goodbye to my friends. Who here is your BBA? friend? I, I agree that, that it's not very effective as, a, as an emotional ploy, but that's clearly what Bobby the movie is Rex's trying. Rex's friend. Yeah. <laughs> that's the other bit where, <laughs> where uh, they mention Babu, that I love, where they mention Babu Frick later on. He's like, Babu Frick? He's one of my oldest friends. <laughs> I love when... Bobby Frick shuts him down. He's like, "Yay!" Yeah. And and after it, C3PO just goes. C3PO just puts his head up. His eyes are red, and it gives Anthony Daniels a chance to really go into a low register and be very serious and all of that. That was cool. I like that. But you have that kind of mishandling of narrative through lines throughout the movie. The, the thing that, that truly baffles me, like, I am astonished that this is in this movie, is the, Ray, I have to tell you something, which is mentioned yeah. multiple times, oh, yeah. and then nothing. Never resolved, never yeah. addressed again, we never find out what it is. I mean, you can, have, oh, they, well, they said in interviews that he was going to tell that he's Force-sensitive. I don't care, it's not in the movie. Yeah. The, the fact that that is still in the movie, without being paid off, is... I can't think of a word to describe it other than incompetent. It yeah. is something that is set up, a lot of attention is paid to it, and then it is simply forgotten. I know, it's just really, really pointless. The first time we watched it in cinemas, we were like, oh, is this meant to be him saying he likes her and all of this stuff? But then when I heard in the interview, it's like, then why don't you just say that, guys? Why don't you have a moment? It is truly bizarre to me that... That was left in there. The vestigial tale of this forgotten plot line is left yeah. ugly, uglily waving around in the viewer's face every now like and again. Like one of Claude's mandibles. It's... I, I don't understand... Like, just edit it out. It, it wouldn't have even been that hard to edit yeah. out. And it's that whole thing of literally a small scene between Ray and Finn could have fixed it where he says, Ray... I think I can feel the force. And you have Ray say something along the lines of, then you know why I have to go alone. Hmm. Why I have to be the one to face him. You can sense that, can't you? Um, another thing that I find very interesting is how they sidelined the Knights of Ren. Yeah. How utterly pointless. Well, there's, well I'm just... I made a list of pointless characters in this movie. People, why are they here? Maz Kanata, why is she here? She's not part of the Resistance. She's she's operating a tavern on this planet. She's been operating the a tavern there. The tavern's been blown up. Yeah, I know, but, like, she's just turned up at the Resistance base now to hang out. 
She fulfills no function whatsoever, and don't even get me started on the, the fanservice-y crap of her for no reason, handing Chewbacca a medal when he gets back at the end. Yeah. Chewbacca's like, I'm 250 years old, I'm over it. it it's it's just the most... Uh, it, it, it really got on my nerves, the amount of fanservice and the amount of... To be honest, it's an overcorrection. It's, it's masturbatory in its, in its mm. self-indulgence. Anyways, Maz Kanata, why is she in this movie? The Dominic Monaghan character, why is he in this movie? Dominic Monaghan, which person is that? Mary from Lord of the Rings. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah, him. Why is that character there? Especially when you've got Rose there, who you've signed line for so much in the movie. Just give her yeah. all this dialogue. Yeah. Why is he there? Probably because he's friends with J.J. Abrams from when J.J. Abrams was creating Lost. Why is Naomi Aki, the stormtrooper, there? Why is Carrie Russell there? Probably because she's friends from J.J. Abrams when he ran Felicity, the show. Why is Richard E. Grant's character there? Well, that's cool, though. I like how he's a true believer. Like, 100% invested in Palpatine. A straight-up Palpatine yeah. loyalist. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's an interesting character. It's a good idea. It's never explored. All that we get is that one scene of him talking to Emperor Palpatine, and we're supposed to be thankful for it, as if that's all that is required. There's, there's, there's really nothing else to that character other than he has a healthy disdain for General Hux, just like the rest of us. <laughs> but which don't even get me, don't even get me started on the turn with General Hux. They clearly had nothing for him to do either. They, oh, now he's an informant, but now he's going to get immediately killed after helping them escape. It's although, and, and that is, I, I. Again, I am trying to find the silver linings where I can here. I do love the scene where he kills the stormtroopers and he turns around to Poe and Finn. I'm the spy. What? You? We don't have much time. I knew it. No, you did not. Like, that's a bit that I do actually like. I, I love when he's like, shoot me in the arm. Shoot me in the arm or they'll know I let you escape. Shoots him in the leg. <laughs> we should probably touch on Leia. They did the best they could. Yeah. And it doesn't look... It looks good. As good as it could look. You know. You can tell that she doesn't exist in the same space as the other actors. Yeah. And that the dialogue is unconnected. Yes. They did as well as could be done. She speaks in generalities. Yeah. Never mm. underestimate a droid. Don't tell me how things seem. Tell me how they are. What news do you have? She never says anything that directly references an element of the plot. Yeah. As I said, she, she clearly doesn't exist in the same space as the other actors. She is... that There is sort of a softness to her definition mm. Mm. that indicates to me that there were problems with the differences in lighting. Yeah. From the scenes mm. that she originated in versus the scenes that she is being inserted into. She is kind of of soft in the way that she is lit, the, the definitions, her edges of, of her figure seem a little soft and blurry in the way that they've been inserted in. Mm. Yeah, I just think they did as well as they could. They did as could. well as they could. Although, frankly, I know that they were really resistant to the idea of doubling her with, with CG and the way yeah. that Grand Moff Tarkin was yeah. doubled. They should have. They should have. It, yeah. it doesn't. It's 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 a whimper of an ending for this character. 
and a borderline incomprehensible ending. Let's let's face it. She goes and has a bit of a lie down and reaches out into her son's mind, says his name, and then dies. Like I, I believe that the the Han Solo bit would have been Leia. Yeah, mm. it would have been instead, and and that would have been the reason she fades fades out like Luke did, yeah. reaching out that far. That would have been really, really effective mm, to me. Yeah. The 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 response to Leia's death that affected me the most is Chewie's. Yeah. He's the last one. I agree with you that that's the really like the way that he just sort of collapses in on himself. Yeah. Mm. Like a depressed accordion. Like Chewie, he's been there most of the time. Yeah. And and to see like his last friend fade mm. away from that old war is just. And how he get he gets told that it happened. He's not even there yeah. for when it happened. We 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 didn't talk about it in la- the bit on the last Jedi, but I, I I I'm a little disappointed that they didn't actually show us Luke's reaction to hearing that Han Solo had died. I would have liked to have seen. I think yeah. that Hamill could really have pulled it off. I mean, how good is yeah. Mark Hamill in this whole trilogy? Really incredible oh yeah incredible there's so much extraordinary power and emotion and to learn that he actually didn't like the direction that luke was taken but he committed a hundred percent to it yeah anyway he he respected the fact that that's the way that it is and sometimes as an actor you have to deal with the fact that that he committed to it a hundred percent and the result is so brilliant it's it's a testament to how really good as an actor he is like he has such power in these movies, especially in The Last Jedi, that, I, I i mean, we mentioned it last week, but why has Mark Hamill not gotten, like, a like a boost from the Star Wars sequel trilogy? Why is he not getting more stuff? He's in those, like, Uber Eats ads with Patrick Stewart. Tonight, I'll be eating a veggie cheeseburger on ciabatta. No tomatoes. Tonight... I'll be eating four cheese tortellini with extra tomatoes. Stewart. So it's come to the... Thank you. Bravo. Careful, Hamill. Daddy's not here to save you. Oh, I am my daddy. Well, there you go. I stand corrected. His career is at its peak. It has never been high. No, I'm, I, I'm not <laughs> indicating that that's a high point, Lawson. You know what would be great fun? Great fun, a Luke Skywalker limited series on Disney Plus. You know his journey to Exegol. Yeah. After the events on the Jedi with Kylo and the Jedi Temple, who would you get to play young him? Get Mark Hamill. He doesn't have to be. Like I'm saying that after the attack on the Jedi Temple by Kylo. Right. Yeah. His his journey to find Exegol and like you just have him. You can, and you can bring Billy D. Williams. Yeah, you just have him with the hair dye. Mm. <laughs> I love how you hear the voices of the Jedi. Me too. In that scene. And it's it's heartwarming to hear Qui-Gon again. It's heartwarming to hear Anakin again. I was really holding out for Mace Windu, Force Ghost. As I said, he is my favourite character in the series. But I'll take what I can get. Oh, keep, keep in oh, mind yeah. that the way that Rey beats Palpatine is straight from the Mace Windu playbook. Mm. And it's like... You gotta lo- you love to I see I love it. to see that. That Mace Windu finally got to see that work. Finally get to see that actually kill him. And we also get... We also get a last bit of Harrison Ford as well. 
I had a different reaction to it watching it this time than I did seeing it in the theatres. Because at the when I watched it in the theatres for the first time, I had so turned on the movie by that point that mm. I was just like, oh, for God's sake, how many dead people are they going to bring back? You know, <laughs> for, for dead people, these guys are pretty spry, aren't they? They won't shut up. Mm. But watching it this time and watching it in such close proximity to The Force Awakens, I really liked it. And I like the fact that it's ambiguous as to what he actually is. Is he a ghost? Is he a hallucination? Is he a memory? Is he an imagination? Is this a conversation that Kylo Ren has been having in his head for years? The the conversation he wishes he had. Ben, I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. the turn of Kylo back to the good side. I especially don't like the mm. the kiss between him yeah, and Ray. Yeah, I didn't like that. Yeah, that's that's sort of like we I think it's all just a little predictable at that moment. Although I do love, as you said, Harley, the Mace Windu energy with which Ray <laughs> turns on Palpatine. Yeah. The sort of like making the cross, the power of Christ compels <laughs> you. The power of Christ compels you. Yeah. Well, that is how you expel a ghoul. I love Palpatine in this. I know that he shouldn't be here, but I just love how demonic he he looks. How the moment he notices that they're a dryad, he's like, oh, change of plan. It's like, oh, here's this this entirely new thing that we're just going to invent and not explain in the last 20 minutes of the movie. Cool. Yeah. I do like how Palpatine's like, this works for me. Mu- this works much better. So here is the thing. I, I I was so infuriated by it, but I have now gone into the EU and found out the explanation for all of this, that this was a plan that he had had for many, many years. Yeah. This facility and the clones were all set up before the events of Return of the Jedi. It just wasn't... Because per- why wouldn't he? It yeah. just wasn't perfected yet, which is why he's so rotting apart. Yeah. So... Yeah. As he's falling in the elevator, he uses the, the the Sith powers he was taught by Darth Plagueis to transfer his body, his his consciousness into that of his uncompleted yeah. clones on, on Exegol. And that everything else is sort of a he's been guiding it ever since. And of course you can yeah. you can make the arguments for that totally uh, undermining the the Vader sacrifice at the end of Return of the Jedi, but you can also make the argument of why didn't the Emperor just immediately get into a spaceship and go back and say, "Hey, everyone, I'm still alive. You can't kill me. Don't even bother." But I wish that it had been explained in the movie. Wouldn't that have been interesting? I like how with yes. the with the Force healing at the end, it's not through the dark side that you can spare someone from death. Hmm. It's through the light. And you get the feeling that Anakin's seeing that, and it's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> it's like, 
Why why was I never told that? And Qui-Gon's like, well, I didn't know. I, I actually think you can make a really strong argument for it being a much better idea if he's Darth Plagueis instead of Emperor of Palpatine. Mm. I think yeah. that would, would have been cool if this this guy who we've we've learned from all of the memes, you know, that he can he can cheat death and mm. that he would be there and be this sort of connection to the past, which is what the J.J. Abrams sequel installments, yeah. at least, are obsessed with. It's it's the past. That would have been a pull that I would have been a lot more on board with. Who would you have play Darth Plagueis? <sighs> Ian McKellen. Yes, yes. That's a good one. But, like, <laughs> How about this? How about this? Max von Sydow. No, that would just Ooh, require too much no. cleaning up. Yeah, fair enough. Was he... he like, no, that was this year he died, right? Yeah. He ate... Um, so he would have been able to do it. Like you could get, you could get John Lithgow to do it. Play some sort of strange alien. I don't know why, but my mind went to Christopher Plummer. Oh, Donald yeah, Sutherland. I see that. He's got Sith energy. Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> it would have just been a little more interesting. It would have been less hard of a pill to swallow than Palpatine, because it wouldn't have felt like we were repeating ourselves. I I really despise the the idea that Ray is. Palpatine's granddaughter. Mm. I mean, it comes out of nowhere because of all of... I mean, the coincidence of it that we've already talked about, but the idea that Palpatine gets some is... (laughs) No, no, it's a clone. It's one of his clones. Do it. Ray's father's one of his clones. Where did that come from? The extended universe. But if it's one of his clones, then why is he good? Because it was the first clone that... It was the first clone that worked... But lacked force sensitivity, so so the clone escaped, and yeah, all that nonsense. It's an it's it. this is just retroactive shit. It's a terrible call. It's the whole like, well, they were nobody. They're no, they weren't. They were nobody because they wanted to be. Like, <sighs> it's that whole. So what I told you is mm. true from a certain, from a point, certain of point of view. It's that same. Obviously, it's like bullshit. they dragged Jodie Comer in very briefly from Killing Eve to play Ray's mother. <laughs> Just briefly, it, and what was the point of it? What was the purpose of it? I do like when all of the different spaceships sh- show up. Yeah, there are mm. apparently over fourteen thousand distinct spaceships yeah. that mm. have been rendered there, and and Wedge mm-hmm. shows up. Hell yeah! I do like how Palpatine opens up the roof and is just like, it doesn't really matter. Kazam! <laughs> power! Unlimited power! But then it's also like, well, they sent out that call at the end of Last Jedi and no one turned up. So now we're supposed mm. to believe that, like, what, a year later, 14,000 ships have turned up, and not only that, but they've they've agreed this time to make the journey to this incredibly dangerous, dark, evil, forgotten planet, which is populated entirely by thousands of, of Star Destroyers with planet-killing weapons that could wipe them all out as easy as look at them? Come on! No, Lando Calrissian rolled a nat 20. He did- he would- like, look at even the timeline. He wouldn't have time. He just simply wouldn't physically have the time to make 14,000 phone calls. <laughs> Ma- 
You know how in charity events that they've got a bunch of people on phones and <laughs> you stuff? You thought that was a phone maybe, bank. <laughs> yeah, maybe they did that. Yeah. Maybe they had Claude on the line talking to a bunch of droids. That's what Rose and Dominic Monaghan and, and all of these people were, were doing. They were just making yeah. calls. Uh, no, Rose was I, on I, the ground. She was on the ship. No, before they all oh. left. Um, I, I do like the idea... I, I love the sound design on Exegol. Mm. Like, the lightning striking sounds like a scream. And the, and the like, really tank bass sound that happens when Palpatine shoots all this lightning into yeah. the sky. I love seeing all of those... That, like, Sith- hits my... Hits my tail. I, I'm pretty sure I said this last time we talked about Rise of Skywalker, but I love how that scene on Exegol with where it's basically Palpatine doing his TED talk to a bunch of Sith loyalists. I would have liked a uh, an explanation for those people too. Come to think of it, you know what I would have loved, and I'm only being half serious. Now. It's a bunch of Gungans. Uh, not 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 necessarily, but like. If that was how they brought Jar Jar back in, that he has been ever since a slave of Palpatine, like mm-hmm. he has been this 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 abused toady that has been forced into servitude as like the final humiliation. What if he showed up on one of the ships? Yes, and then immediately gets blown out of the sky the moment he comes out yeah. of warp speed. <laughs> no, I, no, no, <laughs> no, through absolute. Like absolute Rube dumb Goldberg luck. Bull- He's the one who blows it up. Hmm. No, doing like absolute Rube Goldberg bullshit. He manages to take out one of the star destroyers by himself. I still, <laughs> genuinely, and I am a hundred percent serious. I still genuinely do want a revisiting of Jar Jar in a really Absolutely. dark, emotionally fraught story of what his life was like after yeah. the Empire. Hey, John Favreau. If you're bringing a a Ashoka a Ahsoka back, bring back Jar Jar. Why not? He'd be perfect in the Mando. Yeah, like give him a three episode arc of yeah. the Mandalorian, where it's just like the Star Wars version of Joker. <laughs> well, no, like, I, and I said up the other podcast, but Logan, you know, or yeah. or Binks, or for a period of time, he has to take care of the child. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't want him to be the guy that he was in. The prequel trilogy, though, I don't want him to be the. Go- I'm, I'm, what I'm, what I'm asking for is Luke Skywalker in Last Jedi, a guy that has been beaten down by his own mistakes, realizes the the mistakes that he's made, and has just been thoroughly worn down by the world. Yeah, I am really interested to see where Disney takes the Star Wars in the future. We were yeah. always going to yeah. get a sequel trilogy, but I'm so more, so much more interested by what they can do now that they have spread their wings a little bit. Apparently, they're going back to the Old Republic. Well, that's that's been this new thing that they have with the comics and the books, but they've been saying, oh, this we're not necessarily announcing a movie. But then, if you'll, if you'll give me a moment here, everyone and their dog is developing a Star Wars movie. <laughs> I, I, I think... And they've said that they are they have put a pause on them for a few years to get their bearings and to plan it out. And what I expect is a Marvel style plan going forward. That you will have a connected film and television universe that is that is of a similar construct. That you will have sort of standalone series. That you will then have you know crossovers, storylines intersecting, things like that. 
And I would expect that 10 years from now, we will be getting two or three Star Wars movies a year like we are getting Marvel movies. Fingers crossed that one of them's Jar Jar. Yes. But, all right, here. Uh, Ryan Johnson is still contracted to to do a trilogy of his own. Mm. That trilogy of movies that Benioff and Wise were supposed to do before they, they left the production is apparently still on. Um, they are scheduled for release in 2023, 2025, and 2027. Or at least I think those are still those movies. They might just be Star Wars movies at this point, but they are the dates mm. that were previously occupied by their trilogy. Uh, in 2019, we found out that Kevin Feige was developing a Star Wars movie. That, frankly, Kevin Feige should probably get a bigger role in the behind the scenes of Star Wars if they want yep. to move things going forward. Like, let's not stretch him thin, though. I feel like he's he's set up Marvel pretty much as good as it's gonna gonna be. Like, so it can kind of run independently. I feel like now. he can he can put things on autopilot there and not have to look in every day of the week anymore. I think he's got people there that he can trust with. Like, maybe he can take a more Berlanti style approach where he he takes a little time at the beginning of every. Like, before every season, before it goes into pre-production, say, here's sort of the general gist of what I want, and handing it over to to series runners and showrunners that he trusts, kind of thing. Or put Favreau in that role, because him, Favreau and Dave Filoni. Well, Dave Filoni seems like he's really starting to approach that Kevin Feige position of... Exactly, and I think that's a smart idea for him. In February this year... Variety reported that a Star Wars film from Slate director J.D. Dillard and Luke Cage writer Matt Owens was in the early stages of development. We found out in May this year that Taika Waititi is writing and directing a Star Wars movie. There is reports, uh, BuzzFeed reported last year, and Kathleen Kennedy hinted at it uh, in an interview, that they are developing a Knights of the Old Republic trilogy. In January 2020, Forbes reported that uh, they are allegedly making a uh, High Republic movie, which is what you were you were referencing, Sean. Yes. The High Republic era, which is is interesting. All of the all of those new High Republic books and comics are all have a really great hook to them because they are kicked off by a mysterious pulse that goes throughout the galaxy, an EMP that disables all of the ships. Mm. <laughs> so that that's interesting but there you go you've got one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen star wars movies in some stage of development yeah and that's even before you get to the the ones that they're no doubt working on that they haven't even talked about and then you've got the tv obviously that where they have um uh, all of those... The Mandalorian, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Cassian Andor. Yeah. The female-focused one that people think is going to be an Ahsoka Tano spin-off. Well, there is another Mandalorian spin-off also that is apparently in development. Like, there's going to be so much Star Wars coming, and it's going to be free, finally, of the tether of the, of the Skywalker name. And I'm excited by that more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, at this point, I'm grateful for... Moving away from the Skywalker stuff. Yeah. And from Jedi-centric stuff, to be honest. I, I, like, stuff like Rogue One was a real breath of fresh air. 
and without having to focus on the Jedi and the Sith, we get more interesting mm. stories now. Mm. Uh, so, so the next Star Wars movie comes out in 2023, December of 2023. So it really seems like they've put a pause and are really figuring out where to go. And I feel like yeah. on the TV side, yeah. things are all full steam ahead, right? They're, they're, they're still boosting Disney Plus with this. But yeah. I, I feel like we're really heading towards a, a Marvel-style yeah. setup by the end of the 2020s. Which is a smart direction to yeah. go in. And just think, by the time I... So, well, I should probably address a couple of things that long-term listeners of the podcast might have been wondering... Yes, I understand that Rise of Skywalker is a 2019 movie and, per the rules of the list, should not qualify to end up on the list until the beginning of 2021. But I made the call. There are a number of reasons for that. The the new U-Boot box sets that they released at the start of this year, which is what I ended up watching, that was that. The, the idea that we wanted to do these trilogy podcasts, the idea that it was... It would have been watching eight movies out of a nine movie series and then just sort of stopping before the last one arbitrarily. There are a few and reasons there. It's our podcast, so we get to do what we want. That's true. But um, I am planning when I start the TV part of the podcast, I, I will watch the all of the Star Wars franchise when I get to The Mandalorian. So I'm yeah. I'm giving a bit of a delay, actually. I'm, I'm not working from the Clone Wars or Rebels, even though I'll end up watching those, I'm slotting them them under the Mandalorian's release date because I've got this dream of, like, 20 years from now when I get to it, all of the different stuff that'll be out and I'll watch it all in chronological order and I'll slot the TV shows in and I'll slot the movies in and I'll watch it all. I might start reading the books. I'm going to let it all build up. I'm... I'm a bit burned out on Star Wars for the moment. Well, yeah, you you I, you were saying to me how grateful you are that next next week we'll be doing a movie that's not Star Wars, and I or any other sort of trilogy or franchise. I've long ago gotten used to watching many many of the same thing in a row. Yeah. Uh, like I don't, I don't, I cannot even conceive of the next time I'll be watching like, all of the Star Wars movies, like, in order, in a row. I don't know the next time I'll be watching any of them again <laughs> anytime soon. Not not because, like, I don't like them, but because there's stuff I will go back to periodically when I need them, yeah. you know? Now, now was a particularly good time to see Good Prevail, mm. and I, I needed that, you know? And I love democracy. I love democracy. I hopefully I don't need it again for a while. You know what I mean? Let's have a look at the IMDb parents guide for the Star Wars sequel trilogy for Force Awakens. In a cantina, an alien woman lounges seductively in the arms of a massive brute. <laughs> Here's an interesting take on Han Solo's death. Kylo Ren Kylo Ren kills Han Solo for not agreeing with him and trying to sway him from his conviction. Sure. What? Like, like you could you could only understand that as the meaning of the scene if you're like not listening to the dialogue or looking at the performances. A very concerned person has helpfully provided us with timestamps for any swearing. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. At thirty-four minutes and eight seconds, someone says, "Damn it." At 1 hour, 16 minutes, and 45 seconds, someone says, that's one hell of a pilot. At 1 hour, 
41 minutes and 5 seconds, Finn says hell no to Han Solo. Star Wars and its filthy, filthy language. Do, do they have, like, a sex and nudity thing for, like, the finger touch in Lost Hang Jedi? On, let me have a look here. That erotically, that erotically charged scene. Let me move scene. on to The Last Jedi. The horniest of the Star Wars films. It is, that's no, true. We see, clones, like, come on. Okay, that's fair. But we do see wide Kylo <laughs> without his shirt off. <laughs> well, they don't have the finger touching bit, but they do have... A man is shown with his shirt off, but wearing waist-high pants. The man is quite muscular. A female character stutters and asks him to put a shirt on. He does not. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. This happened. Luke... Oh my god. Luke milks a creature that has four large, strangely unanimal-like udders. They look like breasts. The creature lets out a piercing, orgasmic moan. He then drinks the milk. See, that person made it weird. <laughs> no, the look in the creature's face made it weird when it stared at Ray. It was like, I have a deal with Skywalker. You're a pervert for watching. A man gets crushed by rocks. He is fine, though. Oh, that's nice. Even Yoda hitting Luke on the nose with his cane gets a mention. Oh, come on. That wasn't mentioned in the original ones. I think it was. We just skipped over it. Here's a weird... Okay, this one has spoilers for Thor Ragnarok in it for some reason. Alright. <laughs> so... <laughs> okay, spoiler warning yeah. for Thor Ragnarok. Toward the end, a major character, Luke Skywalker, dies by fading away in a fashion similar to Odin in Thor Ragnarok. This is quite sad and powerful. <laughs> well, I mean... In the sense that he's old, has a beard, and turns into nothing... <laughs> Point of what comparison is isn't even all of the other people in Star Wars that have faded into nothing. Who have faded? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, of course, in Rise of Skywalker, they've got the some some of the kissing scenes. They, of course, have to mention the fact that women kiss each other. Ooh, scandalous! The, the gay kiss really should have been Finn and Paul. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. Like, I'm right or I'm die on that shit. The day I die. Most of the third act has strobing effects interwoven throughout. These may affect photosensitive viewers. This is under frightening and intense scenes. Mm. I will note that um, the back of the Blu-ray actually has a warning for photosensitive viewers, which is the first well, that good. I've seen. But not on any of the other no. Star Wars, you know, <laughs> laser blast and laser swords being flung around the place. The Emperor looks like a demon up close. His eyes are yellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got, like, a, a sex and nudity warning for Rise of Skywalker. Cloud is naked and has prehensile antennae, which which some may consider sexual. Who the hell is considering Claude sexual? Obviously the person oh, who's doing all those photoshops. In the sex shops. and nudity one, do they mention that Babu Frick has big dick energy? No. <laughs> there is threat from the dark side and its ability to overwhelm heroic characters. This is under frightening and intense scenes. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that seems about it. So, before we finish up entirely, why don't we each go around and say who our MVP was, what our favourite scene or sequence in the trilogy was, and at Jean's request, what our favourite piece of music was. 
I will start us off and I will say that my MVP is Mark Hamill. I think that his acting is extraordinary. I think that the way Luke Skywalker is portrayed in this trilogy is brilliant and Hamill meets the material every step of the way. He's such an underrated actor. He should get so much more high-profile work than he does. I really hope that someone realizes this at some point and gives him a really good role in an HBO series or a, or something like that. I would love that. But yeah, I've got to give it to Mark Hamill for really like showing off his acting chops. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, it is the escape of the Resistance in The Last Jedi onto the planet of Krait. The Holdo maneuver juxtaposed with what's going on on the Star Destroyer with the Battle of the Throne Room, the all of that is just expert action filmmaking. It is some of the most spectacular stuff in any of the Star Wars movies, and it's it's just thrilling, and I love it to pieces. In terms of my favourite musical piece, I'm going to go with, I think it's called Torn Apart. It's the music that plays when Han Solo is killed in Force Awakens. Right. I like that one a bit. I think it's probably the only the only musical piece from the trilogy that I actually have on my playlist. So what about you, Sean? What what would you say your your For my are? my MVP is going to be Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson or however you say his name. Because I think he did such a brave creative thing with Star Wars with Last Jedi. He decided that he wanted to really have a message in this movie. It's a very political movie, much like Knives Out would end up being. It's which is another which is great another Ryan fantastic movie that if you haven't seen, what have you done with your life? Um, the message of your heroes will disappoint you. Rise beyond that. Of don't romanticize the past. Understand it. And the lesson to mentors being what Yoda says. We are what they move beyond. And the simple fact that he both wrote and directed that film himself is just astonishing to me. That it is so well written. It's like Darren Aronofsky's Star Wars. And I love it to bits. And I do not understand the hatred that that film gets. I don't think I'll ever be able to. So would you say that your like favorite scene is the entirety of the Last Jedi? Uh, he has tried to pull that trick before, hasn't he, Harley? <laughs> I have tried to pull he that has. trick before, but I'm going to say that it's a toss-up between two scenes, and it, one of them's from the Last Jedi, and one of them is from Rise of Skywalker, the Yoda scene in Last Jedi. That's because m- I think it's just fantastically that. acted, paced, written. It's just glorious. I love. The fact that Yoda is sort of trolling Luke at that point by setting fire to the old tree. I think that's just a very fun energy for Yoda to bring. And the other favorite scene is when the voices of the Jedi speak to Rey. Because that is just emotionally affecting to hear those voices in a Star Wars movie again. And for them to say that all of the Jedi live in you now. It's, I think that's a lovely scene with a fantastic piece of music under it. And for my favorite piece of music, I disagree with you, Lawson. I, I think the music in these is fantastic. The leitmotifs, the Resistance March, Kylo Ren's theme, the use of the Force theme, the 
subtle use of Vader's theme only a few times, but to really punctuate moments. The use of Palpatine's theme in Rise of Skywalker, I love all of that. But I think my fav- one of my favorite pieces... I think my favorite piece is the piano raise theme going into when the Jedi are talking to her. I think that's a gorgeous piece that it's just a beautiful marriage of image and music. My other favorite moment is the, the, what I said earlier, the speeder chase. It's just really good adventure music that I wish was used more throughout the film. My MVP is Daisy Ridley. She does a fantastic job. This is her first big, big movie. And I've seen a lot of her other work as well. Murder on the Orient Express is very, very good as well. Actually, one of my favorite movies, full stop. And she gets a lot to work with. And you can really tell that these actors in these films in particular are getting actual direction. Which is so great to see at long last. And Daisy does it all in the movie. She does the physical, the fights. She does the acting very well. And just great performance. I was going to say Luke, Mark Hamill, but that was taken. (laughs) My favorite scene is the scene with Yoda and Octo. This all goes back to my favorite moments out of the original trilogy, with Luke staring out into the twin sons on Tatooine. Particularly the line out of... out of Lost Jedi, that where Yoda says, "You're still looking out to the to the horizon," sort of thing. Never what's in, never what's in front of you. Yeah, and it's man, it's good to see the puppet again. Like, and Yoda's does just that significant character, the only one who would have really been able to get through to Luke. I think, barring old Ben Kenobi, but you know, my favorite piece of music is Kylo Ren's lead motif. It's just very striking and really gets the point of the character across. When we were watching Rise of Skywalker, the moment his light motif turned into a heroic one, you turned to me and smiled. Well, yeah, because I know that you would have looked at me anyway. Hmm. It's just like, it's one of those very versatile yeah. themes. It, it's like the only other theme that I can think of that is just as versatile is probably Vulture's theme in Spider-Man Homecoming. How it's played yeah. with so many different ways. Yeah, so Lawson, what have we got next week? Well, next week we will be talking about something very, very different in tone and scale in pretty much every way. We will be talking about the classic 1999 found footage horror movie, The Blair Witch Project. If you would like to watch along at home. It's on stand now. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, they just added it uh, See, yesterday. See, it wasn't on stand when I checked before. So How lucky. Apparently it's on stand, but it's also on Prime Video. If anyone is in Australia yeah. and wants to watch along, you can also purchase or rent it from the Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. Yeah. I completely forgot that it was on Prime. Yeah, but it's it's nice that it's on stand yeah. now. It's funny how that sort of thing lines up. Because the mummy lined up incredibly well, too. Someone must be listening. Yeah. If you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. Uh, Lawson is at Exodus the Candy Counter. John and I are at On the Bright Side. You can also find us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give specific feedback on particular episodes, particular moments, what you like, what you don't like. Uh, and that link is also in the description. Y- you can also comment, 
rate and subscribe. The comments are like on the show more broadly, and the comment show engagement. The way that you just said comment was very funny to me. Zinger! Man, I am boiling here. Just let me get through it. Uh, so yeah, I went on all the. I, that was that's. You did all of them, yes. That's the whole spiel. That's that's the whole thing. I am melting. I'm done. I have been Holly Lewis. I have been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis.